0: Welcome back to the 10 Tabs Open Podcast. This is your host, Alex Howell, and today we had on Mike Beam, and Mike was, is, uh, one of the greatest influences in my life. He was my high school director, and he was also randomly my, um, he was my first college director. He directed me in Guys and Dolls, where I played Sky Masterson, Over the River and Through the Woods, Anasazi, which is a musical that was uh, uh written by a friend of his. And then in college, he actually went to my college and directed me my first college show, which was Dark at the Top of the Stairs. And in every single role, every single, he was also my freshman English teacher, and in every single role and every single time and every single interaction that we've had, the one thing that I'm constantly reminded about is that this is an incredibly deep person and an incredibly open person, and somebody who enjoys the people that he's around. And he only keeps around the people that he, he respects that he can speak to, and he may have one of the biggest hearts of anybody that I know. Um, I'm going to tell you that in this episode, it's not just going to be about theater. We go into all kinds of crazy subjects where we're discussing everything from uh, Steve Martin writing a play to politics to climate change to aliens to near-death experiences, and uh, at the very end, talking about when we're going to get together for poker. So. Some of the subjects you're probably going to think are a little crazy. Some of the subjects are um, maybe not your cup of tea. But I can tell you one thing. Uh, One thing that I very, very much appreciate about Mike and always have is that he's always open to the conversation. And especially when somebody's curious about something, when somebody has to open up about something, he is always the first phone call that you can make because he will always, always answer. He will always be open. And if he disagrees with you, he's going to tell you. But at the end of your conversation, he's going to give you a hug because he loves you to death. So, Mike, I know you're a little bit nervous about coming on. Nobody could appreciate the fact that you did come on more because, again, you are one of the biggest influences on my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I hope you guys enjoy.
1: If you get a chance, you yeah. see Bright Star at Okta. Okay. Oh, my God, it's such a wonderful play. Now It's a bluegrass musical written by Steve Martin, the comedian.
0: Uh-huh. I can't believe I haven't heard of that. I love Steve Martin.
1: Uh, it was on Broadway mm-hmm. a few years back. I don't remember exactly when. Yeah. But I, this is the first production in Kansas City that I know of. Okay. And I saw it, and I went, why haven't – why didn't one of the professional – yeah. Companies do this, but it's
0: what's it about?
1: Uh, it's a hard story to tell, without giving away. But yeah, essentially, it's set in the 1920s and in the 1940s. And it's based on a, a true story. Okay, and um, it's kind of a a young man coming home from World War in the 40s mm-hmm. and his love story intertwined with some people in the 1920s and their love story. Gotcha. And Interesting. It's really hard to explain without giving things away and stuff like that because there's a lot of surprises to it. Yeah. But it's just such an uplifting, feel-good show.
0: Let uh, you escape the world for a little bit. Yeah,
1: and it's... um. Uh, awesome music, and they have a bluegrass band, mm-hmm. you know, for the musical. Nice. But they're called the Iron Mountain Pickers. <laughs> and when you go into the theater, they're already playing and singing oh, nice. regular bluegrass songs and stuff like that. Yeah. So you get like a half hour, 45 minute concert nice. from them before the show actually starts.
0: That's fantastic.
1: And, um, yeah, it was it was really one of the neatest shows I've seen. It's like, oh man, I wish I could direct that someday. Yeah.
0: It's I'm constantly impressed. I never I was always a, a stand up comedy fan, but it was never something that I was obsessed with. It was just every once in a while I'd listen to one and like it and um, one thing one of my favorite things about the internet now is that there's so much access to everything. You yeah. can really kind of expand your mind because you can access so many different things. And so because of that I've listened to a lot more stand-up comedy. And I was I watched one of Steve Martin's and I can't remember which one it was, but I didn't realize how inappropriate some of his humor was and I loved it couldn't stop laughing, but for a per, I guess what would you call it a, a particular type of performer I'm always amazed at the people that can do stand-up comedy because, one, it t- takes a lot of confidence, and two, unless they're stealing them, they're writing every single bit of their material. Right. And so it's, to me, one of the most interesting, because com- we always look at like, you know, movies, and you hear, well, this person wrote, produced, directed, and starred in this, in this movie, and it, it's always this celebrated thing. Look at this incredibly talented person when comedians do it every day. Yeah. and somebody like him that's not only doing that but can write something that isn't, I guess, in his genre. Um, it's pretty impressive. Well,
1: he's always been a banjo player. Yeah, yeah. And, and loved bluegrass music. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote Picasso, La Pina hmm which was also on Broadway. And wow. he's written several other short plays and things like that that I'm aware of. Yeah. He's also a huge art person. Really? Yeah, he's like one of the trustees for this big art gallery, the Getty Mm -hmm. gallery in Los Angeles or something. Yeah. And he's absolutely certified a genius. I mean, he's just absolutely brilliant person. And you think from his comedy, you know, the two wild and crazy guys Uh and the movie, the jerk and stuff like that. You think this guy's an idiot, but in reality he's like,
0: off the charts super brainy that's incredible yeah i do i always think whenever i think of a movie with steve martin i know everybody thinks the jerk but i always think three amigos
1: i never saw that
0: yeah it's slapstick humor yeah that's all it is but it's entertaining but i think my dad let me see the jerk when i was probably a little too young to really (laughs) comprehend it so i watched it a couple years later and i was like okay well this i can get behind this but Three Amigos is so slapsticky that, it, you know, an eight-year-old can really enjoy it, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, you're right. I, I'm sure that in some situations it takes – because, I mean, you direct the theater for how many years?
1: I directed <laughs> my first play when I was 19. Oh, man. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, and you were t- – you retired from RayPEC my year in 2005, but then you came to State Fair Community College and directed dark at the top of the stairs right after that. So I guess technically it was still 2005 but different school yeah. Um, but when you when you're either recruiting, no matter what it is, when you're finding the right talent for the right role, do you see somebody that's maybe a little bit more intelligent that's able to kind of push that range as opposed to somebody who's just kind of stuck where they are they have to play that one particular type of character and you just try to guide them in. I mean, what's the what makes up somebody who's a good actor, in your opinion?
1: They have to be highly intelligent. Nobody yeah. can ever handle all that's required of an actor, yeah. unless they're really sharp people. Yeah. And um, oh, it's so hard to explain. Mm-hmm. But there are some people who. They're best if you just let them bring themselves to the part. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people who can become the character rather than the character becoming the actor. Yeah, And um, I mean, I have respect for both types of actors. John Wayne Mm -hmm. was great as long as he played that type of character. Right. But he could bring the emotion and the feeling to it and the power that the role needed and those kinds of things Mm -hmm. you know very very well right Meryl Streep on the other hand it's like Meryl Streep stays out in the car yep and this new person comes in who is exactly what the author has in mind yeah she's amazing too
0: oh yeah i I was watching something, it was actually yesterday, I was watching, uh, I think it was one of the opening monologues from the early 2000s, and they were talking about, no, it was just a couple of years ago, I think it was when Jimmy Kimmel did it, and he was talking about Meryl Streep and how many nominations and how many awards, and she was nominated again that year when he did it. And I couldn't believe, and it makes sense when you think about the number, you know, the I guess the timeline of her career and how many nominations she has, but he said that the longest period of time that she went without a nomination was like between 95 and 97. (laughs) Three years was the only time she hasn't, was the longest that she wasn't nominated. And to me, that's absolutely incredible that you have somebody that, like you look at Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise is kind of Tom Cruise and he's gonna be Tom Cruise. But even Tom Cruise you would think would have a role or two here or there where he would get nominated and he was nominated for Tropic Thunder and that's the only time it's ever happened. With her, it was three years that she wasn't nominated. I mean, it's it's incredible to me.
1: He made a wonderful <laughs> film. I can't remember the name of it right offhand. But he made a film with um, Nicole Kidman mm-hmm. where they are Irish immigrants involved in the, uh, the land rush in yep. Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, oh,
0: what was that movie called? That's one of my favorite movies. That's why. I, yeah. Yeah, because he... They're Irish immigrants. She's from a very rich family. He's not. They sneak off to America, have a terrible time over here. He ends up bare fist boxing or bare knuckle boxing, gets knocked out. It goes from the top of the top to the low of the low, and then somehow they end up in Oklahoma at Land Rush. Yeah. It's a great movie. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. And
1: I I thought his performance in that was wonderful, and he didn't get any real recognition for it. No. But you never know. Right. What – is going to catch on and what is not yeah you know artists have to put it out there time and time again and sometimes they do something that really connects with people Mm -hmm. and other times it may really connect with them but not with other brothers you know
0: yeah it's to me it's interesting when you look at the even like the people that you think of current great actors and Meryl Streep is able to, I don't know how, what her work schedule is like, but she's able to put out a movie a year or two movies a year and just constantly do it and constantly love it. And that's probably what it is. She just enjoys what she does. But somebody like Daniel Day-Lewis prepares for a role role for five years, and then all of a sudden he creates this amazing product, and he wins an Oscar for it. But it's because it took him five years behind the scenes learning to do the, I can't remember the last one he was in, but he was nominated or won, and he played a designer of some sort. Um, like a.
1: Oh yes, a I remember the previews to that, but I did not yep. see the film.
0: Yeah. So he plays it, and nobody had heard from him in five years. Well, he apparently had moved to Europe, and everybody thought he was just, he decided to like go be a cobbler for several years, and it wasn't. He was just learning for this role, and when you watch the, you know, whether you watch the previews or you watch the film, you see how his hands are working things, and it's like, you can't There are certain things you can't fake, and those scenes seem to be so intimate that it's not like they can cut to somebody else's hands that knows what they're doing and cut back to him. I mean, it took true, amazing dedication, and it just seems like somebody who goes through that, it would be very disappointing if it flopped, like if nobody recognized the work that went into it. But I'm sure it happens every single
1: day. Of course it
2: does.
0: Yeah.
1: That's why I always think that in reality, we should celebrate artists... For attempting, yeah, and that's what we should celebrate. Mm-hmm. Whether what they did was meaningful to the whole world or just to one or two people, right, doesn't matter. The fact that they made the attempt yeah. is is what should be recognized. Yeah. And um, out of those things, lots of things aren't recognized until long after the artist is gone. Right. And then people will suddenly realize how far ahead of its time that particular piece of art was.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think the, you know, we were talking about paintings, you know, that seems to happen with almost every single painter throughout history. They live as a pauper their entire life. And then 30 years after they die, somebody comes across one of their paintings and goes, this is a work of genius. And we had no idea at the time. And that's very sad. Like th- to, to not be recognized throughout your lifetime for the good work that you did for humanity is, is unfortunate. I don't know where we lose that because a child paints a picture and it could be terrible and, you know, it doesn't matter if they're inside or outside of lines. We tell them that's a very good job, very good attempt, very good try. It's beautiful. It's positive. You try to work them up. And then somewhere, you know, at the age of seven, we decide that, well, now you have to stick to our compass. We have to stick to exactly what our society is doing. It's like, well. Do you? I don't know. <laughs> I think there's a difference between between learning and expressing and it seems like we kinda make that more black and white than it should be sometimes.
1: Probably so. Yeah.
0: But yeah, you know, with
1: But it's like Picasso. You were talking about yeah. how people don't get recognition artists don't until yeah. after they've passed away. And that's true in so many so many cases with visual artists especially. Mm-hmm. But also sometimes they become well-known and respected and everything while they're still alive and active. Yeah. And I think it usually has a negative effect upon them. Mm -hmm. It's like Pablo Picasso. There's so many stories of him when he became a famous artist, he would go to the fanciest restaurant in Paris and have a big scrumptious meal. Mm -hmm. And when they brought him the check, he'd take a napkin and sit down with his pen and draw a picture of a bull in about three seconds and go here. And <laughs> wouldn't pay, but uh-huh. give them an original Picasso. Yeah. And they were thrilled because, my God, it's an original
0: Picasso. Exactly. But,
1: you know, it's kind of like he, uh, kind of a bastardization of himself. Right. You know, yeah, which is kind of sad.
0: It's really sad. It, it's, it's, and again, going back to stand up comics, like they talk about this all the time, but I think it's true in a lot of different types of art form that some of the most, um, and I don't know what, what to really draw from this, but it seems like some of the most damaged people create some of the most beautiful things. And whether that beautiful thing is, you know, a representation of their life that is tragic but is an amazing story or, you know, their artwork is a part of, you know, how they're feeling and they're feeling negative. So it kind of goes into the art. It's amazing that some of the people that are hurt most by society end up doing things that help society the most. And that's a really weird – I don't know the right word to put there, but it's a def- it, to me it's a very strange and very interesting phenomena that that's happens. It's kind of a paradox. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I you, you don't want anybody to be hurt in society, but at the same time, there are so many people that were, I mean, Da Vinci was probably a great example, like hurt by somebody cut his ear, threw a picture of him with his ear cut off. Van Gogh. Van Gogh, thank you, sorry. <laughs> Different. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, its it is isn't, wasn't there a, I remember in high school you talked about a play where they actually um, were like the, the individual who was writing the story or writing plays, whatever it was, had a brother who was um, um, mentally challenged. And like, the parents would hurt the brother, thinking it would then inform the artwork of the other son. Do you remember that at all? Yes, that's yeah. the pillow man. By oh, Martin is it? McDonough. Okay. And that, I've just explained that story to people the way that I just did, not well, but just explained the premise of it. It's like, what kind of person wrote that? It's like, I don't know, but I've heard it's amazing. Like, And I don't know how terrifying it is or how scary it is or how sad it is. But.
1: Trevor Belt just did another production of that show. Oh, did he? Yeah. Nice. Wish I could have seen it. He, yeah. he directed a production in Kansas City years ago That. Gotcha. That, that was just amazing as well.
0: Yeah. Uh, I assume you feel a little dirty when you come out of that show.
1: It sure takes you on a ride. I saw yeah. it on Broadway. Yeah. And there, it's got a long first act. Mm-hmm. And it comes to a definite crescendo. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the first act. And I suppose that some people misunderstood and thought that was the end of the play. Oh. But at the end of the first act, people actually stood up and booed. I'd never seen that in a Broadway theater in my life. Wow. But like five or six people were just furious and you know, stood up booing and everything. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if they came back for the second act or not or if they realized that that wasn't the end of the play. Right. Because that was definitely, it's not a satisfactory ending. Right. <laughs> but it did <laughs> seem like an ending. Yeah. But then at the actual end of the play in the second act, it got a standing ovation and just, you know, tremendous acclaim wow. from everybody that was still there.
0: Yeah, but except the five or six people that left. <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm
1: not sure if they left or not. Right. But they sure seemed to be angry at mm-hmm. the end of the first act.
0: Yeah, I think that's the best thing about live theater is the you get the immediate emotion. I mean, if you're if you're in film, if you're on TV, I mean, I guess on TV, if you are in a studio and you perform in front of a studio audience, it's a little different. But in movies, it's like you go to the premiere and you see the pomp and circumstance surrounding that, and that's fantastic. But at the same time with live theater, every single show brings a very different crowd, and you get to see how much impact you have. I mean, the fact that people were driven to such emotional heights that they booed because they weren't satisfied with the story as opposed to the acting, is that's almost fun if you're in that cast. Yeah. Like, okay. It's
1: it's an amazing roller coaster that that the – Playwright takes the audience on. Yeah. They're just unbelievable.
0: Yeah. Well, anybody that writes a play to me is talented just in general because that takes patience. It seems like it takes a lot of patience.
1: Well, then maybe they're patient. They're not necessarily talented. Fair enough. (laughs) I'm sure there are bad playwrights. I could could (laughs) give you some manuscripts to prove my point.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but still, I mean, just when you actually see the production – If you have a good play and you see the amount of work that goes into not just the lines that are spoken but you know i'm always i love reading the intro of a play because it puts you exactly right in that moment and you know they have the directions on lighting at times and audio and what's going on but they're i mean that's inside their brain they're bringing it to life with through words and to me that's incredible because i'm somebody that you know sitting here talking sometimes the right word doesn't come to me i call van Gogh, da vinci And so for somebody to be able to paint that picture and then tell that story through multiple voices is just, to me that's, and maybe I'm wrong because obviously there are great authors, but to me if you have a great play and a great book, to me the great play is more impressive.
1: I would agree there. Because a playwright has so many restrictions Mm -hmm. to to his product that a novelist, say, doesn't have. Mm-hmm. A novelist can travel all over the world. Every page can be a different scene, a different location, a different character. Yeah. But if you're writing a play, it has to have, to a great extent, continuity of place mm-hmm. and continuity of time. Uh, you can have flashbacks and things like that. But um, just writing something that can be performed on a stage in a two-hour time period— yeah. you know, it's, there are just so many more restrictions that a playwright has to deal with than a novelist or poet or other artists have to do. So, yeah, you know, and they have to have it within about two hours because if it's longer than that, probably nobody's going to ever s- sit through it till the end. Right. You know, yeah. a novelist can write 800 pages, and if they don't feel like they've made their point yet, they can write another couple hundred.
0: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I mean, I didn't even think about the, you know, the, the set either. I mean, you're definitely restricted. You can't travel. I mean, I'm sure you could make an incredibly complicated set and travel the world, but it wouldn't look right. And when you see a, a play or a musical take shape in, um, in movie form, you realize that restriction pretty quickly. It's like mm-hmm. if you go see Les Mis on stage and then you see it in the movie, it's like, well, you can't, you can't do that there that doesn't work right yeah so
1: when you have a live audience they have that uh, what's the term willing suspension of disbelief yeah you know and and that's a wonderful thing too because the audience will use their imagination to take the trip along with you Mm -hmm. and they'll accept lots of things in a live theater that they would never accept in a movie right you know, they right. expect a movie to be something different than that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the willing suspension of disbelief was something that was a very, it was, we went and saw Hamilton. I told you about that when we saw each other last. It was wonderful. It was a great show. The cast, in my opinion, did a fantastic job. And d- d- Lin-Manuel Miranda just blows me away with how he, he I mean, he, it, the entire soundtrack is almost the entire show. And that was incredible to me. And I... This is the reason that... And I probably shouldn't say it, but this is the reason I don't like watching shows at the Midland. Because I always end up sitting right behind the guy with the giant head. And I can't... Like, I have to find... I have to choose my seats where I like them because I can actually know that I'll see. But it was Hamilton. And every show sold out in five seconds. So you just kind of got what you got. But I sit behind that person... And then next to me was one of those individuals that we always talked about when we'd go to, you know, international thespian festivals, like don't be this person, where they brought snacks in, they brought drinks in, they're laughing at inappropriate times. They're just kind of every time you would kind of sync up with the musical and feel like you were in it, they would do something and just take it completely away. And that is one of the most frustrating things in the world to me now that I've seen enough product that I've seen so many productions is when I have somebody that They just don't appreciate the fact that everybody—you know, you're kind of in this with everybody else in the room. You, the cast, all the people sitting in the audience, you kind of have to work together. And when you don't have that, it becomes very obvious very quickly.
1: Right. When you purchase a ticket to a play, you're joining in on an unwritten contract. Yeah. That you're not going to do anything to detract from everyone else's experience. Yeah. And there are some people that just can't recognize that. No. Um, and they're simply there for themselves. And yeah, it can be sad.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's sad in movies, but man, it's when you have something on screen that's so amazing, and you have all the special effects and everything. Somebody can bring you out of it for a second, and you're right back because it appears so real. When you're there, you know, if if the set is, you know, a uh, uh, you know to die like we had in guys and dolls and you know they're pink and green and that's supposed to be a sewer and that's where we're going where jared hill and i were going it's like you kind of you accept that that's completely fine because this is just what you're doing but you kind of have to be fully engaged in that feeling as well like that you have to be paying attention everything has to be going right so yeah when somebody does that it just drives me absolutely up a wall as you can probably tell because i'm already getting frustrated (laughs) But that was, uh, you and being involved with you and Guys and Dolls was one of the most fun experiences I've ever had. Because that, that was a trip, to say the least. Just never having done that before. I mean, I think I was the, the, the nutcracker in fifth grade, and I played a minor role when they did the eighth grade show. And then it was like, okay, go on stage with really good performers and really good actors, and. Have done this before it's like all right good luck i hope he knows what he's doing <laughs> but i guess that was your first role wasn't it yep my first role in high school i tried out for something i think my freshman year and then it seemed like every single time i was going to do it like there was baseball or there was something else that was going on and then when i my shoulder decided to shred itself sophomore year i didn't have anything to do and then you came to me talking about doing the spring show the next year so That's when I got excited, though. It was fun.
1: (laughs) I really enjoyed doing Guys and Dolls as well. I had just done the previous semester Bat Boy. Yep. Which was one of the most complicated and difficult musicals I was ever involved with. And then, you know, there's six part harmonies, and I don't even know the. I don't know the language to explain the musical complexity of Bat Boy mm-hmm. to someone because I'm not a trained musician or right. a trained singer even. But
0: well, you know, you will. knew six part harmony that that pretty much can sum it up right there. <laughs> six part harmony with high school kids. Yeah, have fun. <laughs>
1: and a music director who was not a trained music director. Who was it? Uh, Dustin Blakeman. Oh, really. A theater major in college, uh-huh, but he was also in a rock band. Mm-hmm. and it was kind of a rock musical. so yeah um, When I did Bat Boy, it was it was just an extra show that we kind of stuck in. I don't think I got paid for it or anything. Mm-hmm. I think I just did it because I thought I had the right people to do it well, yeah, and that it would be a fun project and yeah. and it was. It was, it was fabulous. Yeah. But then I remember going from that right into Guys and Dolls, and Guys and Dolls was so easy. <laughs> it was, you know, everybody knew their songs within an hour. Yep. <laughs> of, oh, yeah. Of, of when they heard it the first time. Yeah. And it just, the production was so smooth, and I loved the way the set worked and, yep. and how – we were able to travel to all these different places with with <laughs> movement of a bench or something like that it might be all we had to do for a scene change. Yeah, it was um, it was great, but I think the the ease with which that show was produced showed on stage mm-hmm. and made the audience comfortable and made them ready to just sit back and enjoy. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. More than you do with some shows.
0: Yeah. It was it was a wonderful experience. I feel like I learned so much from just being a part of that set. I mean, I talk about this all the time, but one of my one of my favorite things that ever happened was and it was terrifying at the time, but I you always taught us, you know, how the audience works with laughing and it comes down and then you say your line, you stick it there. And I was, it was the scene with Sky and Audrey and, uh, uh, or Adelaide, Audrey Burke, but Adelaide. And, uh, they're talking and hit a line. She nailed it. The audience went crazy. I said my line right as they were at their loudest and nobody heard it. I was like, I don't know if I should repeat this. And without missing a beat, she waited for it to come down, said my line and then said her so that it made sense. It was like, that's one of the most impressive things I I, I I see with acting is when you can recover like that. When actors work with each other to make sure that it happens, and it's terrifying for the one, but instantaneous at times for the other. And I did that in college for somebody else, and it was just one of those like you jump on stage, you get it figured out, and you get off stage, and it's like okay, that's I I hit that level. I'm very happy. I can at least I know I can at least know that I learned enough to be able to step into a situation like that. But she was the one that made me realize that was even a thing Mm -hmm. that you did. So it was very cool.
1: (laughs) It's amazing the kinds of things that can occur in live theater. Yeah. And the way the actors have to work around that or accommodate that into the, incorporate that into the the script or the dialogue mm-hmm. in some way. Um, years ago, I went to see a production of Blythe Spirit mm-hmm. on Broadway. I had uh, Richard Chamberlain, Judith okay. Ivy, um, uh, Blythe Danner. Yep. And it was a wonderful, wonderful production. And uh, fortunately, I had really good seats, like the third row, nice. right in the center. And you know, Broadway Theater, big lush act curtain mm-hmm. that had this huge big uh, like tassel things hanging down mm. loops of gold braid. Oh wow hanging down from the bottom of the curtain, you know, mm-hmm. which is a decorative touch that a lot of a lot of fancy theaters have. Yeah. And the play is set in um, the drawing room of this British couple. Mm -hmm. And at the beginning of one scene, uh, they're getting ready for guests to come over and they're supposed to have cucumber sandwiches Mm -hmm. and tea and whatever. But when the curtain came up, one of those loops on the bottom of the curtain somehow hooked onto the downstage handle of this big silver serving platter oh that had the coffee pot and the teapot mm-hmm. and all the sandwiches on this great big tray. Yeah. It hooked that handle and lifted the whole thing up about 15 feet into the air. You know, the <laughs> everything crashed to the ground. And um, then finally the tea tray came loose too, oh and it geez. fell down. And the only person on stage was Blythe Danner, and she was clear on the other side of the stage.
0: Yeah, nothing she's doing. And, yeah,
1: And she just went, my goodness, how did I do that? <laughs> 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 and she went over, and she gathered everything up. And, you know, there's obviously no tea in the teapot, no coffee yeah. in the coffee pot. Uh-huh. You know, she put them all together. and gathered everything up but the sandwiches the little cucumber sandwiches had Mm. scattered all over the carpeting on the set Mm. she kind of scraped those back onto a plate and said oh what am i going to do we can't serve these so (laughs) all through the play she pulls the bell cord to call the maid but she knows that the bell cord doesn't really work. Yeah. <laughs> so she says, "I'd better call Edith," and she goes over to the bell cord, and she kind of pulls on it. But she goes, "Edith, Edith!"
2: Oh my <laughs> gosh! Know.
1: And, um, you know, Edith doesn't respond. She's not supposed to come on stage at this time. Uh huh. You know, she's probably off in a dressing room. Right. Knows what she's doing backstage, and. She keeps going, Edith, would you come here, please? (laughs) And finally, the actress playing Edith cracked the door open a little bit and peeked in and said, did you need me, madam? And she says, yes, come in here immediately. And the girl's going, you know, you can just see from her eyes what in the world is going on. Uh So she says, I spilled all these sandwiches on the floor, and, and they're just ruined. You're going to have to make me some new sandwiches immediately. And the girl goes, but but, and she says, "Take these. Bring me some new sandwiches immediately." And she goes, "All right." <laughs> you know, she doesn't understand that they've been dumped on the floor or whatever. Right. Um, she didn't see right what happened, so she goes out through the doors and obviously just goes out the door, turns right around in a circle, and comes back in with the same plate. <laughs> Oh, my God. And she goes, here you are, madam, new sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and Blythe Danner looks at her and goes, that wasn't Blythe Danner. I said that, but it's Judith Ivy." Gotcha. And she says, those are our sandwiches? And she says, yes, madam. And she says, you expect me to eat those? <laughs> and the maid says, well, well. We were out of cucumbers, madam, so I made peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so finally, Judith Ivy gives up and goes, okay, we'll eat the dirty sandwiches. Uh-huh. She takes the tray from her and she goes, thank you very much, Edith." And she goes on with the scene. I can't remember exactly what happened next, but eventually the couple that are coming to visit come in and they're – Eating their sandwiches. And, of course, they were off in their dressing rooms during this whole fiasco that happened at the beginning of the scene. Yeah. So they aren't aware of it at all. <laughs> and then the one lady has this line where she says, I always enjoy coming here. These are the most delicious cucumber sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, Judith Ivy says, uh, uh, thank you. Uh, but they're peanut butter, actually. <laughs> 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 and the actress that had called them cucumber sandwiches gives her this look, like, "What in the hell is wrong with you?" <laughs> you know. But then she goes, oh, <laughs> "Of course, peanut butter. That—that's what
0: I meant." <laughs> you <know? laughs>
1: and you know, it worked. I was just in hysterics because I yeah. directed that play once, and I
0: knew exactly knew what was exactly going on. what was going on. Yeah.
1: But I was with uh, three other people mm-hmm. who had never seen the play before. You had, hadn't even read it. And they had no idea that anything had happened oh, wrong.
0: That's a- amazing.
1: Because, well, especially with this particular play, there's a, a ghost. Yeah. blithe spirit is this ghost who's <laughs> um, come back. It's the spirit of the husband's first wife. Oh, oh. And
0: that
3: becomes an interesting
1: little dynamic. He's now with his second wife, uh-huh. and the first wife is really, really jealous, <laughs> and conspires to kill off her husband so that he'll be with her again instead uh, of with oh uh, my god with the the other woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, it's just a she throws things around and stuff like that. So sometimes they're
3: uh
0: huh.
1: There are stage tricks where things are flying around, books fly off the bookcases and things like that that indicate that the spirit has gotten angry and done something. So when the tray went up in the air and fell down...
0: Plays right in.
1: Yeah. A lot of people just thought that was another part of the show and that was something the spirit had done or something. <laughs> when, no, it was just a big mistake. Uh-huh.
0: Wow. I... Something that big would be tough to recover from. That's a 15 feet in the air spilling coffee, tea everything. Oh, well, it didn't spill coffee or tea. Oh, it didn't. They were empty. Oh, they were empty. Oh, okay, you gotcha. Know, they nice. Were just acting like they were drinking yeah. tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> plays in. Yeah. Just go back out, pour more in. <laughs> it's fine. Jeez. Yeah, that, when the audience doesn't even know, you know that you did a good job. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a testament to that actress, especially. It must have been fun after the play. Like, what the hell were you doing? (laughs) It's like, I have no... I I had to say something. What am I going to do? Like, (laughs) Edith wouldn't come. Nobody would help me out. Nobody was listening. Yeah. I think it was because I was always too afraid to actually miss a cue that I didn't spend a lot of time in, like, the dressing room or in the green room or anything like that. I was pretty much always on the side because that was the thing that was a nightmare to me was the couple of times where you have to... It feels like an hour, but it's probably five to ten seconds where you call somebody and they don't come on stage. Right. Like, hey, Tim. <gasps> and then you're just like holding your breath, like, please come out. And then you see the figure off stage running because they know they missed their cue. It's Like, Tim, are you out there? Then they're on stage. Like, Boy, <laughs> get on here. Pay attention. And I was always freaked out about that. It always scared the death out of me that I'd leave somebody on stage like that. Yeah. That's a nightmare. I still have nightmares about mistakenly doing that, and I'd never—I don't think I ever missed a cue because of that. Hmm. Good fear to have; it's definitely yeah. helpful. But you also yeah. don't want too many actors on the side because they'll just distract the other ones. But
1: but also, <laughs> if you're in a show on Broadway, mm-hmm. there's a stage manager who's going to right. cue you and say you need to be stage right in two minutes or whatever. Yeah, you know, calling calling the whole show mm-hmm. and. They probably prefer that you aren't backstage. Yeah,
0: stay out of the way. You
1: know, yeah, stay out of the way. Yeah,
0: well, especially some of the larger productions too. Right, like five or six people—that is what it is. But when you've got forty, it's got to be a little bit more difficult. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I one—I think it was um—I think it was with Eric. I was talking about the um, the theater that we had, and you know, SFCC's theater compared to. Ray Pex. And I remember you saying, like, one of the things that you were a little frustrated with was the way that they designed it. It was too wide or the stage was too big. There wasn't enough area on the side. And when you're, like, walking in a door and you have to sneak down the curtain, like, when two people are passing each other, you can understand. Because when you go to something like that, which I wasn't familiar with, it's like, you feel like you've got tons of room back there. You can kind of walk around and put a chair out. Everything's fine. But it was, I think... I remember having a few conversations with you where it's like, there's some limitations to this thing, and that's frustrating.
1: (laughs) But there were some nice things about it, too. Yeah. I was very happy to work there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the back, the... I only saw pictures, I think, that Carla posted on on Facebook, but it looks like they have a pretty nice facility there now with the new addition to the high school.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, the, the theater itself has not changed. Right. But the backstage area they have a huge scene shop area and costume storage and and all the technical aspects that you want are there nice and yeah i'm surprised you haven't gone by and checked it out well
0: especially when i lived in blue springs it was just one of those like Uh, it's 50 minutes to get back here i'd see my parents but that was as far as i'd go so it was just trying to you know make the excuse to do that you know and i always say like kids 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 like it's the toughest thing in the world to sneak around that it's like it's not i should just go but is what it is but when i saw that edition i was like i bet that's nice because it looks from the i mean from the school road it looks massive so it'd be cool be nice to have (laughs) yeah i
1: have you ever been in the flex theater at the middle school
0: i did and i don't remember when i think pearson and i might have gone up there at some point it's just the, I mean, it's not very big, right? It's the small. Right, yeah. it's a black box theater. Yeah,
1: yep. But they've got this, I guess it's steel cable net uh-huh. over the entire ceiling. Mm-hmm. And you can hang lights anywhere above the stage. Nice. You just walk on that net. Uh-huh. You can't fall through. If you drop a light or something like that, it's yeah. not going to. Come crashing down on stage. That's, that's really safe. Yeah, and just allows that immediate access to the whole lighting thing. It's really amazing. Nice.
0: I think the one. I don't think I've seen the one at Ray Peck. I think I've seen the one. I know I've seen the one at State Fair, because they built that out of what used to be like their newsroom area, like for their journalism side. So yeah, I, I, I never got to a toilet.
1: chance to see that when I was there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we were speaking of limitations in theater in general. It's like you want to talk about limitations, go see a black box show and see what some people are able to do with the, something like that. It's like you better step your game up. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah.
1: The production of The Pillow Man that Trevor directed in Kansas City was like in a basement. Really? Like down in the bottoms. Oh, wow. And um, the one wall was just this big stone foundation wall for the building Uh uh-huh you know and they just incorporated that into the set wow and um it worked really well because there are people being tortured and things like that in this play and
0: (laughs) And you're in a basement in the west bottom it
1: seemed like a dungeon yeah (laughs)
0: quite good yeah i i I didn't understand how neat flex spaces could be until the f- like first time going and seeing a production in a black box or going and seeing just something in a very different space. I mean, th- something like theater in the park or that kind of thing is wonderful, but when you can actually make a great production with you know a couple of chairs, a table, and all black around you with three lights on, you, you know you had a good production. You know you had some good people working right. on that thing. Right. Yeah, I... I Recently, I was on um, a person that I had on here, Corey Childs, who was, uh, you know, you know, Corey. That's right. Quite well. Yep. And I went down to the arts asylum where he's at and was like that place just took my breath away because I was thinking, you know, just kind of normal, small stone or brick building. And it's a massive complex. And what they've been able to do with that, I was just so impressed with.
1: Did you get to see any of the artists that live there? Or their work I or saw yeah I saw a few of I stuff. saw
0: a lot of their work because they have it kind of in different spa- spots around um, but the studios I think some of the studios on the second floor were occupied and people were working so I didn't want to bother them yeah. but he took me to the to their basement area and was showing me some of the artist spaces that were there and I was just shaking my head it was like you guys are doing amazing things here it's like you're giving people a space that they otherwise probably could you know, outside of their own home or apartment, they couldn't really afford to do this, but they have a creative outlet, and it's all here. So just to see that was amazing to me. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, I, their um, their main theater. I like the fact that they have their main theater, several different work workshop rooms, and then also in the basement they had that large space where they have their stage outlined. I was like that's a wonderful idea because that just means that you can bring one production in there while one's going on up top, and just cycle them as much as possible. And even there, he said that they're already looking for more spaces because we kind of talked about this a little bit outside. It's like there are so many small theater companies in Kansas City that want space and so few available. And that to me is unfortunate because there's so I mean, you've mentioned several already, but it's like you have all of these great shows with young directors and young actors that are trying to make their way. And not enough space for them. It's like, we probably should fix that. That seems like a, an unfortunate mistake on, on the city's side. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'd always hoped when they uh, redid Union Station mm-hmm. that they would have made it a theater complex. Yeah. And created several theaters. They've got the H&R Block stage, which is yep. great, and kind of K Cats mm-hmm. home now. But yep. They could have built three or four different size theaters in that space yep and given a home to a lot of production companies that are really struggling
0: yeah it's it's interesting to me that that's that that's the case you would think that you know i think people who want to go see good theater are willing to kind of see it in all types of different environments i don't think you need a traditional setup to have a great show i mean you were just talking about trevor's in a basement but right. it was a great production and there's i mean there's a thriving community of actors and directors and people that want this to be something that they do full time and i remember you talking about that in high school it's like anybody that says that you can't make a full time career out of you know theater or acting is blind you don't have to make 30 million dollars a year you can make a decent living and still do the thing that you're passionate about and that you love and i don't think a lot of people realize that <laughs>
1: actors are told every Every moment when you're growing up, you're told that acting is frivolous. You can't make a living. Mm -hmm. You know, you're crazy to go into that, and you'll just starve. And maybe you will be hungry once in a while. Yeah, but but you won't starve to death.
0: No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll be doing something you love too. Right. I mean, if you're having so uh, important. Yeah. I mean, it's it's important for your mental health. It's important, you know, if you feel like you gave up on something because you had to quote unquote go to, go get a real job but you're not happy in your real job but there's somebody who makes you know half of what you make that loves every single day that they're alive it's like who who's making the right decision here right and that's an unfortunate thing again you know i, I don't know when we decide to kind of push people's dreams out of perspective but it's an unfortunate thing that we do because you can be an artist i mean you know you can't whether it's you know whatever type of art we're talking about whether it's theater whether it's you know painting graphic design anything like that you can make you can do it you can be just fine and but theater i think is the one thing that you need a space to play yes and that's you know an artist can you know they can work at a a small space like what and i say small it's relative to a huge studio but some of those places at the arts asylum are gigantic compared in for uh, money that you could Never get anywhere else for that amount of space, but with theater, you've got to have a theater. That's the re- that's the reason it's called. <laughs> unless you want to go just at a on a field, which I'm sure people would go to see that too, but you you definitely need the space and you need the production value, and not having enough is very disappointing. So. Yes, <laughs>
1: but I have an amphitheater just across the lake from me now. I, yeah, at the at the Hawkridge Park. Yep. And I stand in my dining room and look out the windows at it over there and think, now what play could I do mm-hmm. over there with just no scenery, just a couple actors and a table? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. And uh, would anybody come and see it? And yeah. You know.
0: And I don't think you you need too much. The one. I thought of with that was like if you had six good actors you could do over the river with a table and chairs and a couple of couches, be good to go. <laughs> I guess you could. Yeah. I mean I liked our set. Oh, I did too. <laughs> but you wouldn't have to have that. Right.
1: But it certainly added to the
0: Oh, hundred percent
1: hominess of the of the whole experience. Yeah. Because I, I wanted that production to be like going to visit your grandparents absolutely and um i i think we captured that fairly well yeah i think so too i was very very proud of that show
0: yeah that was it was very interesting to go from guys and dolls to over the river big production like 35 40 kids running around singing songs dancing two over the river and through the woods with me and five other people and i think you and um i think it's rachel brown now but rachel we see at the time and so what's that eight people total doing mm-hmm. a show it's a very different experience and that's just eight actors and directors and i don't mean you know obviously there were more people backstage that were putting the set together and doing that kind of thing all the stuff that i didn't have any talent for at the time <laughs> but uh, that's that was a very a very neat experience because it was so intimate and sometimes I don't think people get to do those kind of shows all the time where it's just a small cast, but you really realize how much you rely on each other. Yes. And it's, it's all about the moment that you get on. <laughs>
1: You're talking about that show. Yeah. Um, I did a show. Well, 1984, I mm-hmm. think it was uh, with Gwen Fulton who at the time was the theater teacher at Harrisonville High School. And we'd been close friends and worked in community theater together for years. But the play is Tally's Folly Uh by Lanford Wilson. Yep. And it's a two-character show. It's 97 minutes long.
0: I didn't realize it was just the two characters.
1: With no intermission, (sighs) just the two characters. And we rehearsed that show with just the two of us and the director night after night after night. There was no one there. No crew people, nothing. And when we actually performed the show, there was no one backstage because Matt comes on Mm -hmm. at the very beginning while the house lights are still on.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And then Sally comes on shortly after that and there's never an entrance or an exit. It's just a 97-minute duet with those two people and so there was absolutely no reason to have anybody backstage wow Um,
0: that's incredible
1: yeah it was it was a fabulous experience yeah and of course it's one of the great plays of all time as far as i'm concerned Mm -hmm. and you were involved in another one of the plays of the from that trilogy Mm -hmm. the only one i've never seen staged Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) Um, Actually, I intended to direct it at one point in time, Mm. and I had auditions, and all these people showed up to audition, but I just didn't have the right people auditioning to Mm. cast that show as well as it deserved to be cast. Yeah. And I thought, I don't want to do this show Mm
3: -hmm.
1: that I love so much without the right people for it. And I thought that somebody would show up and show me that they had what it took for this part or that part, but it just didn't seem right. So I went to my bookshelves and started looking around and found The Oldest Living Graduate by Preston Jones mm-hmm. and thought, this is the show I need to do. <laughs> this show, I can I can cast it perfectly from the people who auditioned. Yeah. So it's the f- first time I ever did it, but people auditioned for me and I posted the cast for a different play.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh.
1: And just put it up there and said, pending board approval, this is the show we're doing. And these are the cast members. I'm sorry, but I didn't feel that we could adequately cast mm-hmm. uh, Italian son. Yeah. So I never got to do it, and I'm so sorry that I was not able to see your production. But I believe I was in Colorado
0: then. I think you were. Yep, yeah. It was. It was a. I really thought Tim nailed that casting. It was a good group. I mean, it was a, a lot of the people that were just kind of around at the time. You know, it was me and Gabe and Trevor, um, and several others. But I we we'd kind of run the show and, and the very first time and it was just like this clicks real well. Mm-hmm. And it probably clicked really well because I didn't have to act like I knew anybody cause I played the dead guy. So <laughs> I remember I got, uh, somebody came to review the show and, um, uh, I got a really good compliment and it's one that I remember you just beating into our heads. Like just because somebody else is talking doesn't mean you're not acting like you better react. And that's half the job of that character is to be just inside enough so that you kind of know what's going on but you rarely talk it's a bunch of people discussing different things and then you break the fourth wall talk to the audience bring it right back and so my eyes would just shift around and if somebody said something i thought was funny laugh be sad don't be sad be happy run away and be a ghost again but i was i thought that was a really good compliment like I always knew who was the person that I needed to be looking at if I shifted over to you because you were in. Yes! Good compliment. I'll take that. Makes me happy.
1: (laughs) It was absolutely absolutely a wonderful, wonderful play. Yeah. And I'm sorry that it isn't done more.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, to your point, though, to your credit, if you you don't have a cast that clicks, that's that's an emotional range of a show. Yes. And you better have it right. But like I said, I, I play the guy that barely interacts with anybody. (laughs) I just have two big monologues and a moment in the end. And Don Maltzberger had a really great moment that threw me off of my game, and I was so happy that the play was almost over uh, because she plays the aunt. who. Oh,
1: she was Aunt Charlotte? mm
0: Mm-hmm. And she, the way that we had it blocked was I went up, and she's staring out of the window, and I'm supposed to go up with her, and then she walks out, lights go down one play or one of the a- actual performances of it we had done it several times where i hit my mark she hits her mark she lo- kind of turns back looks past me and then it- that's when she walks off lights go down i don't know who didn't hit their mark i'm going to blame her but it was probably me but we i mean within 6 inches of getting it perfect and lights are already pretty low she turned around and looked right through me. Didn't look over my shoulder, didn't look over this shoulder, turned around and looked right through me, and I thought it was something that should have been done every single performance Mm -hmm. because it just – the immediate thing for me was I then knew how to play that that moment perfectly, but we were two or three performances in, and I was like, oh, we could have made this happen. This could have been really good because even though I'm dead, she's kind of – that's the whole symbol she's about there – but when she looked at me, it was just like I saw a ghost that was a living person.
1: Well, don't you think that that she knows that Tim is there at that moment?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And that's what I mean. I think that's how we should have played it the whole time. We walked off set, and I was okay. like, "That was amazing. Yeah. Don't change anything," because now I know how I should have been reacting this whole time, and I really regretted that. Like, why nobody thought about that was be especially me. Like that was beyond me. But it was beautiful. I was like, that, what you just did was great. She was like, I kind of thought I freaked you out. I was like, you did. That's the point of that moment now. That's what I like about it. So, yeah. But, yeah. Small. That's not a really small, small cast. It's a fairly large cast for something like that, I believe. But you you do have to have the right people there.
1: Now, are you familiar at all with the 5th of July?
0: No. Mm -mm.
1: Oh, my. You must read that. Okay. It is the final play of the Tally Trilogy. Okay. Uh, Lanford Wilson originally intended to write a cycle of nine plays Whew. that would cover the Talley family from pre-Civil War times up to present day. Mm-hmm. But he only completed those three gotcha. before he uh, moved on to other things. And mm-hmm. I think he always intended to go back to them, but he didn't. Yep. I can tell you a wonderful story about Lanford Wilson. Yeah. Because um, – years ago back in his youth Mm -hmm. he was in Greenwich Village trying to be a playwright and he lived for a while with Robert Patrick a friend of mine who's also a playwright and Bob told me this story I think it's just wonderful
0: I'm just looking over to make sure that that thing's still running it didn't one time and it freaked me out so we're still good we're good
1: (laughs) anyway Bob said that He followed Hemingway's advice to a writer. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be a writer, that's your job. Show up at your typewriter at 9 o'clock in the morning, and you work until 3 o'clock in the afternoon writing. Mm -hmm. If it's all junk, tear it up at the end of the day and throw it in the trash. Or keep it until the next morning and look at it then and decide whether you're going to throw it away or not. Yeah. Write. If you're a writer, you must write.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: not fair to just say I'm a writer. Right. If you're not really doing anything. And so Bob did that day after day after day. He wrote play after play. And Lanford said he was a playwright, too. But he was just a party boy. <laughs> <He's> always <laughs> running around, going here, going there, seeing this person for lunch, seeing somebody else for dinner going to see a show whatever Mm -hmm. and Bob said but every once in a while he would get a real serious look on his face that was just like he was suddenly a thousand miles away and he would sit for a few seconds and then he would search all over the apartment for a piece of paper and a pen or a pencil back of an envelope anything and he'd write something down and he'd write for two or three minutes and then he'd take that piece of paper and he'd go into the kitchen and on the top shelf in the kitchen cabinets, he had a shoebox, and he'd stick that piece of paper in the shoe box. And Bob said, I didn't know what he was doing, but, you know, every once in a while I would see him do that. Mm-hmm. And then finally, one day he said he was sitting there and he said, that's it. That's exactly it. And he ran and found another piece of paper and wrote some stuff down. And he went and got the shoebox. Instead of putting a slip of paper in, he brought the shoebox out of the cabinet and sat down at the kitchen table. And he started s- sorting through all these scraps of paper. And he started numbering them. And he oh stacked them up <laughs> in a pile and took it to Bob. And he said, Bob, you know, I can't type. I just I'm a terrible typist. You're a pretty fast typist. I think I've written a play. Would you type this up for me and tell me what you think of it? And it was the play, The Rhymers of Eldridge, which is a published, highly respected play of Lanford Wilson's. And Bob said that those scraps of paper just flew perfectly from one to the next to the next to the next and he might have written this one in July, and this piece in February, and this piece in March, and this piece in May. And he never, ever saw him ever take one of those slips of paper out of that box and look at it to see. Now, what did I say exactly here so it flows right? No. It was all in his head, and it came out piece by piece. And he said there were only like two or three line changes at all oh from the from the type. From the script that Bob typed from that s- piles of scraps of paper, to the published script that you can get today from Drama's Play Service, you know that I think is just an amazing picture of how that genius worked.
0: Yeah, I mean that's completely next level to hold all of that in your mind. Right. I mean, writing dialogue is difficult enough. Writing it piecemeal at different times and in different areas that's that's just Altogether, a different level of intelligence, Mm -hmm. and while being a party boy and drinking and having a good time, (laughs) was your friend just pissed off when he saw that? Like I'm at my typewriter nine to three every day. This guy's writing stuff piecemeal, and I put it together, and it's it's published now.
1: Well, Bob was a highly successful playwright as well. Yeah, and so I don't think he was jealous. Mm -hmm. I think that he was frustrated Yeah, that his process was so much more laborious than Wilson's process was. Yeah. And I don't know that Wilson was that way with everything he ever wrote, but mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if he were. Yeah, I'm Facebook friends with Marshall Mason, who uh, used to be the director for all of Lanford Wilson's plays. Oh, gotcha. And I met him a few times, and he's a really really nice guy. And I would like to ask him sometime about mm-hmm. that, but I just have never gotten the courage to. And mm-hmm. We're Facebook friends, but
0: yeah. that now was, I'll just throw the message uh, at him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. Someday I probably will. Yeah, I don't know. That's incredible. I can't. I. I just honestly cannot believe that somebody is has the ability to think that way. Yeah. And. You know, I mean, again, one of my favorite things about the world as it is today is you are now, you know, that is brought to your attention all the time with individuals who are just kind of plugged in at a totally different level than the rest of society is. I mean, if you listen to somebody like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg talk, it's like these are fairly young individuals. I don't understand half of what they're saying, and it's not because they're not saying intelligent things. It's because they're thinking three steps ahead of almost everybody else. The only thing that I disagreed with completely with Mark Zuckerberg on was, and this isn't a moment of genius, it was just one of those, like, have you seen Terminator, was when he was talking about the fact that AI would be a really positive thing. I was like, it's going to happen, no question, but they did an experiment, they were working with AI in their systems, and the artificial intelligence that they programmed then created their own language that they couldn't decode. I was like, this is what I'm talking about. That's the most, when I heard that story, and they immediately unplugged everything. Yes. It's like, I'd love to see where that is, because there's no way they didn't have it hooked up to the internet somewhere, and it's just calculating how to kill everybody. <laughs> it's like, you don't play around with this stuff, guys. You guys are really smart, but I don't think you're thinking ahead. It's like when Google got in trouble because they, they were trying to make the online experience better for people so that they could kind of direct people on what they knew they liked. So in order to do that, what did they do? They read their, their emails. They scanned all people's emails and then they would only let them, like, relate things that they'd seen there. It's like, no, 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 no. Nobody needs to do that. And then they got sued and then they had to apologize. But it was one of those things, like, you plug somebody in at a certain level who is that intelligent, who knows what they're doing. And th- great things can happen. Great, uh, great advances in civilization. Amazing writings. Amazing paintings. Amazing films. Amazing plays. Or... With technology, you could destroy the earth. (laughs) And it kind of freaks me out that some of the most intelligent people that we have now have access to our entire lives. And it's a little freaky. (laughs) Well, it's like
1: um, in history, Alfred Nobel, Mm -hmm. the guy who created the Nobel Peace Prize and all the other Nobel Prizes, Mm -hmm. invented dynamite. Yeah. And, you know when he saw the destruction and the terrible uh, opportunities for death caused by a product that he'd created only with, I guess, mining in mind, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, uh, I think he had tremendous guilt and set up those prizes as a way to encourage better things in the world rather than yeah destruction.
0: It's a strange moral play that we get into when you, when you really look at some of, some of history's figures like him, because there's another one that always it's it's the strange it's a, not a moral dilemma that's the wrong word but it's definitely you know I think it's another paradox, but one of the worst, um like Nazi war criminals, and I can't remember who the guys what the guy's name is but one of the worst Nazi war criminals I think he was the one that invented a way to get more oxygen and nitrogen into soil to grow more things. Like he found, like he discovered a process that we still use today in like fertilizers and aeration and that kind of thing. But he created this process to get more of those things into the ground so that the turnaround time for soil wasn't so long, which means that we were able to feed people that were starving and couldn't afford food because now food was cheaper now. Also a Nazi war criminal. Mm -hmm and you have to be able to compartmentalize those two things like great job on this you're still a terrible person but without that evil genius do you get the positive like that's the to me that's a very strange thing it's like you're obviously an awful terrible terrible person thanks for that one thing though and for alfred nobel it's like thank you for creating something that recognizes amazing people dynamite maybe your best work maybe not your best work i have no idea were able to get things in the ground because of you, but a lot of people have died as well. It's a strange moral dilemma to me when you think about those type of people. Right. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the one about the the Nazi worker, and I'll try to find his name and and uh, and actually get it through. But yeah, he that was the one that freaked me out. It's like you saved, you probably saved millions, if not billions, of lives, and yet. Still an awful person. <laughs> yes. But, but
1: is a person awful if they truly believe that what they're doing is right?
0: That's a philosopher's question. Yeah. I, I am not qualified to answer that, Mr. Bean. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, you, you can call me Mike now. I know. <laughs> it was uncomfortable.
0: It, it was uncomfortable for a few years. I don't think I. I, I know when you were in uh at State Fair everybody you told everybody to call you Mike and I was like, I can't do that yet. I, I can't I've been calling you this for five years now. I I can't do that. <laughs> but no, I you're well and you look at it now as too with if you're talking about that, you talk about the United States. It's like, you know, we send soldiers overseas to do the things that we don't want to do. Do you say it's wrong or do you say that they're doing what they should because that's what their directive is? like that's a tough thing like and I don't know how to answer those questions and that's just not you know the military that's a lot of different situations if you're if you're Monsanto and you're trying to feed the world but via seed and chemicals that you have you've made sure that corn is as cheap as it could ever be along with government subsidies but you've made sure that corn is very cheap but you also make sure that farmers can't reharvest seed what's what's the positive there or what's the negative there and does one outweigh the other
1: oh i definitely think they're evil yeah to do that
0: yeah Um, Uh, yeah and i'm not disagreeing with you i it's uh, it's uh, to me it's a very strange thing it's just like the other two in my mind where it's like yeah you're not doing the right thing but feeding the world like the guy that kind of just you know discovered but really kind of put GMOs into the into the true population, really was able to kind of drag it down to a science. GMOs are always talked about as these terrible things, but you don't have the things that we have without them being genetically modified throughout a long period of time. Was it right or wrong? Like, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Wheat doesn't look like wheat from the 1700s. I know that. But it feeds a heck of a lot more people. Yes. <laughs>
1: However, wheat... I don't think that the genetic modifications that they've done to wheat have changed it that much from what it was I mean for years and years and years it was hybridized and mm-hmm. varieties were crossed and
0: yeah, two seeds know, split in half put together better you know, product
1: and um, when it's created in that way I don't think there's anything wrong with that that's entirely natural mm-hmm. you know, but when they do this genetic manipulation then it's kind of scary to me Yeah, it's it's really kind of scary to me like they've got that golden wheat now Mm -hmm. that keeps kids from going blind in Asia and um, India and places like that where people have been malnourished they did this gene splicing or whatever you call it where they put this into this wheat Mm -hmm. and now that wheat has a nutrient that it that wheat just or not wheat rice mm-hmm. did oh, okay didn't offer before yeah and now the people eat that kind of rice and it gives them a nutrition or new nu- nutrition nutritional thing mm-hmm. that they need that otherwise they weren't getting in their diet and yes yeah. prevented lots and lots of people from going blind uh, so that's a wonderful thing yeah but we never never know mm-hmm. you know, when that can turn around and come back to bite us.
0: Yeah. Like the movie Have you seen Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey at no all? I have not. That it's it's kind of that premise is the reason so they're trying to find another um another habitable planet. That's kind of the backstory behind everything. That's why he leaves and he goes through this wormhole and takes them to three different worlds and they try to find which one works. The reason that they're leaving is because every single one of earth's crops is just dying off so they talk about and i can't remember exactly which order it is but like we're do you remember when we could grow corn do you remember when we could grow soy now all we have is wheat like and it's just constant dust bowl mentality but basically we killed earth because of the stuff that we were putting into it and you're right that's a terrifying thing and the reason that but the reason that so many people are on this planet right now is because we can actually feed them Right. Yeah.
1: But it's like right now, all the forests are forest fires mm-hmm. in Brazil. Most of those fires have been set by people because they want to create fields where they can grow vegetables. Yeah. And that's and terrifying. those vegetables are going to feed the world
0: mm-hmm.
1: for a time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But as our fresh oxygen is depleted because we ruined the lungs of the world in order to fill the bellies of the world. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. eventually something's got to give.
0: Yeah. yeah. One of the. Uh, I, do you know who Bill Burr is, the stand up comic? No, he uh he's very Boston, very loud, but he's very funny and he kind of he's he has a very good ability to discuss topics that are off limits in a funny way. And it reminds me of Louis C.K. before Louis C.K. Louis C.K. himself, but he—it's just a very different approach and very loud. But um, that's—it's—he kind of, talks about something that I believe is true, but I, there's no way to really fix the problem because I don't know if it actually works out long term. And that is, he basically says there are too many people on this planet, and so he has this whole thing about how we get rid of more people, and that's. The funny part that's inappropriate, but I I honestly do believe that it's like, we have 7 billion people. At some point, you're going to have people that need to be fed. You keep feeding them. They keep populating. And then you start burning down the rainforest so that you can grow food for the people that you are feeding because you have more food. Like, it's a problem that's just going to continue to grow. But, yeah, the Amazon rainforest thing freaked me out because you heard the stories, and it was like, obviously – there are times where forests burn to the ground and then it's just it's a natural process that's not what it is it's private interests that are trying to you know take over some of the most you know nutrient dense vegetation in the world so that they can grow stuff and even in the middle of the jungle sometimes it's not nutrient dense but they can make it that way right pretty quickly yeah but yeah i i don't i don't like fires in the amazon so that we can put more cows and more soy down i don't that's mm-hmm. not a not a positive thing for me. <laughs>
1: the last time I was in St. Louis, I guess it was March or April, mm-hmm. I went to a White Castle hamburger place. Mm-hmm. Was, I love White Castle hamburgers. I'm yep. Well, they're not everyone's cup of tea. I, to, I grew up in St. Louis, and White Castles are something we always had. Oh, yeah. But they had... At this particular White Castle, they were test marketing lab-grown meat. hmm So I had a White Castle hamburger that was grown in a Petri dish or some <sighs> laboratory. Mm-hmm. And only one cell had been taken from a cow. And then that cell wow, uh, grew into a hamburger that I ate. hmm and it tasted like a hamburger, like wow. a White Castle hamburger. Yeah. And you know, I still still wonder if there are things inside <laughs> me right now that are gonna pop out of my stomach. <laughs> <like alien. laughs> yeah. Because it was kind of creepy eating it, but
0: um, well, especially if it does taste exactly like it, that's yeah. that's really strange. Well, like this, but this that's a, what it is. Yeah. This is a bad magic trick. Yeah. <laughs> Or it's a great one because you don't have to, you know, kill a thousand cows.
1: Right. Yeah. All the pollution that cows Mm -hmm. cause, all the methane they release into the atmosphere is.
0: Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. I, this is, I think, I can't remember if we talked about this, but I know I've talked about it before. That's, I mean, you know where I fall on, like, on the political spectrum, but. That was one of the things that, to me, was the most disappointing about the Green New Deal was when they had the email exchange where they talked about cows and the methane that they produced, and they just were talking about them farting. It was like, no, this is a big problem. Like, like You can make fun of it all you want that this was something that was kind of brought to the political forum before it was ready to be broadcast, but— you need to understand the background of the problem. And that is that we're feeding cows in mass quantities. Basically we're feeding them in the worst places on earth. Like if you actually see the factory farms that are there, Mm -hmm. how disgusting and terrifying we're treating living creatures like that. So one, you have to be okay with that. And I don't think anybody who sees those are gonna be. But the second thing is we're feeding them corn because we subsidize corn. And so that's the excess product that gets filled to them. That's not what they're supposed to eat, but they're in mud pits. They're supposed to eat grass. When they eat grass, they don't produce as much methane. We subsidize corn, we give them corn, they produce methane because evo- in a, from an evolutionary perspective, that's not what they should be eating.
3: Right.
0: So they produce methane. And on top of that, it's like, I think it was, I can't remember what the movie was. It was um, a documentary that was produced not long ago. But they talked about how everybody tries to, like, put in their nice water-saving um, water, uh, water saving faucets and everything and just how much water you can have and how much you can save. It's like, but if you just don't eat one cheeseburger, you technically save, like, 200,000 gallons of water <laughs> just because of what it takes to grow a single cow. Mm-hmm. It's like, if you just don't have that one cheeseburger, you do more than you did for a month of trying to reduce your water that you use on a daily basis. Yeah. And it's stuff like that, that the Amazon burning down freaks me out. At least now it's out there and it's public. You don't see those facts about factory farming and about corn and about methane. And when you do, it gets squashed immediately. Right. By the party that I used to identify with 99% of the time. I shouldn't say 99, probably 80% of the time. But. I just look at those situations and I'm like, you can, we can talk about finance, which is how I always used to make my decisions. You can't be stupid though. You have to be able to come to terms with the fact that this is a problem. Yes. So that, that freaks me out. Methane production and the fact that we're killing all the trees is just like, just a little scary.
1: (laughs) I saw something the other day online about how uh, one acre of hemp, plants can produce more paper than four acres of trees mm-hmm. in six months time
0: yeah and it's the easiest thing in the world to grow yeah you just throw seeds out in the middle of something it doesn't and it'll need
1: grow insecticide it doesn't need fertilizer Mm-mm. you know any yeah. of those things
0: well the only reason it's that hemp and therefore marijuana the only reason that it's illegal is is because William Randolph Hearst was pissed off about the fact that hemp paper was cheaper and he was using trees and he was trying to shut down small newspapers so that he could have a greater influence.
1: There are so many stories like that Mm -hmm. that you hear of. I mean, I saw a documentary one time where Henry Ford had made an entire car Mm -hmm. out of plastic from hemp plants Mm -hmm. and he showed his workers going up to the car and banging on the doors with sledgehammers and it would just pop back into place and wouldn't show a mark. Why don't we have those cars today? <laughs> you know,
0: because because a guy that owned a newspaper the politicians were terrified of said, if you don't do this, I'll pay the other guy off.
1: Something like that. <laughs> yeah. And it's like <laughs> when Ford made the Model T, it could run on either gasoline or alcohol. hmm and the real reason that Prohibition came about was because Standard Oil <laughs> didn't have any market for gasoline. Yep. They refined oil, mm-hmm. but there was no market for gasoline at that time. But it could work in cars. So they pumped huge amounts of money into the uh, Prohibition movement yep. and got alcohol banned. Well, and
0: Rockefeller was a famous— you know, teetotaler. I mean, he didn't drink at all. His, I mean, his son did. But <laughs>
1: well, maybe he didn't, or maybe he did. But mm. the real reason that he was suppressing alcohol and making it illegal is so that he had a market for his gasoline. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, and yeah. now we have internal combustion engines that run on gasoline that are destroying the environment in that way. yeah And we could have we could have run our automobiles on alcohol that we could have created from lawn clippings or tons of other waste products that we could just ferment in our own stills. Yeah.
0: Or let the cows eat grass and we make it from corn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If you want to keep subsidizing it, let's make this happen. Put it into a car and it'll work fine. Yeah. I heard a story and I don't know if this is true. um, So don't fact check me because it, there's a very good chance that it's not. But I did hear that somebody had actually created like a very efficient like steam engine for a car, just ran on water. And now obviously with everything that's gone on, maybe not the best idea to have that, but they created this engine that would power a car and then Ford bought the patent. And again, I don't know, I I do need to fact check that because it could absolutely be not true. But at the same time, it doesn't sound out of the question.
1: It's very possible. Yeah. But there are also a lot of urban legends. Exactly about things like that. Mm-hmm. When I was teaching in Chilhowie in the late seventies, I forgot you teach there or taught there. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Five years. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when I taught there, a student told me that. Uh, just think for a moment to get the story straight in my mind, or I'll mess up telling it. Oh, I remember now exactly what yep. it was. This guy got a car, and it got wonderful mileage. Just absolutely incredible. It was like getting 80, 90 miles per gallon. Mm-hmm. And it was a car that should get like 15, 20 miles to the gallon. Yeah, But it His car was getting 80 miles to the gallon, and he just couldn't believe it, and he was so excited, and one morning, one early morning, he got up and noticed there were people outside around his car, and they had the hood up, and they had taken off his carburetor, and he went out there, what are you doing, what are you doing, don't mess with my car, Mm -hmm. you know, and they said, we're sorry, we're from Ford or Chrysler or whatever company it was, but we put an experimental carburetor on this car, and you got it by accident. And we have to, you know, install a f- the correct car for or carburetor for this car. And they did that and went away with this carburetor, and
0: <laughs> and twelve miles to the gallon later. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and. Okay, that was an interesting story that mm-hmm. this kid said, and it was supposedly his cousin or something yeah. like that. I've heard that same story told to me by 25 different people mm-hmm. in the 30 years since then, and it's always somebody they know's brother or yep. s- something like that. You know, yeah, it, it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> right. Oh, exactly, yeah. Couldn't They're not forgetting like
0: 12 times. <laughs> but... Yeah. But if it doesn't sound out of the question either. <laughs> yes, it doesn't. And
1: I'll always wonder about things that are supposedly suppressed. It's You always hear that they've discovered cures to cancer, but mm-hmm. they can't make any money curing people of cancer, but they make billions and billions on treating people who have cancer. Yeah, it's
0: in Pfizer's drug vault somewhere way in the back so that you can't get to it. But, yeah. yeah.
1: You know, and who knows
0: mm-hmm.
1: which of those stories are correct and which of them are just wishful thinking or yeah. whatever, but we'll never know the truth. No. You know, Trump talks about fake news all the time. And while I don't believe a word he says, mm-hmm. I have to agree with him that to a certain extent, a lot of the information that we're given isn't necessarily the exact truth.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's, my, my wife and I have talked about this several times, and it's one of those unfortunate realities that we find ourselves in where you, you have a rallying cry like that, and then CNN or, you know, ABC or the New York Times gets tricked because they see something online and they allow one of their journalists to, you know, push something that goes unedited and then it turns out to be true. I mean, you do that one time, and you can go back to a story and say, that nope, that was untrue, that was untrue, that was untrue. And it's a really—this is a time where we should be, or at least in my opinion, news outlets should be digging down into every story. Every single story needs to be edited five times to just confirm that what's going on is true. And it never effing happens. I mean, I'm sure that there are large stories that come out where, you know, they do something and they present it and it's well-researched and that's fantastic. That's journalism. But when you go towards sensationalism, you end up, you know, kind of creating your own mortal wound with somebody like, you know, our current president. Because it's like, you can, whether you like the guy or you don't like the guy, like you were just saying, you don't believe a word that he says, but that's an unfortunate reality that he's been able to play off way too often because it's happened way too often right. and i don't know what i'm not smart enough to know what the answer to that is but you know it's one of those moments where society kind of has to look at themselves like we're okay without sensationalism right and right now everybody's like hell no that's how i'm making a career <laughs> sensationalism is what i do when you have alex jones that has a huge crowd he did something right one time in the late 90s, or early 2000s, and proved that Bohemian Grove was an actual thing. Ever since then, it's been spouting craziness. And sometimes it comes across and it's real. Most of the time, it doesn't. That should be construed as fake news. Something like CNN has to be more responsible than that. But every anytime you create a 24-hour news network, it's, it's that way. Fox News, MSNBC, CNN. I, I'm terrified of those organizations. Because, you know, Cronkite could do the news in an hour or 30 minutes. They have it on all day, every day, with no break. Something will get created.
1: The frustrating thing about it to me is that it's on 24 hours a day, but they tell you so very little. You know, they have 24 hours to give you the news, and Mm -hmm. they give you the same three or four stories 24 times. Mm Mm-hmm. With almost no depth to the coverage.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, when that, um, when, and I can't remember her name, but the lady that um, refused, who was working at a, like, I don't know, I assume Alabama, um, a marriage license office, like, for the state, and she refused to give it to a gay couple, even though they could get it now because it's legal right. via the federal government. Thank God, by the way. Um, but. They made national news on that. That should have been a 30-second maximum blip on the news. Like, this person did this, went against the federal government, lost her job. Congratulations, that's what it is. Like, and then you see all kinds of people gathering around her, and every single time one of those stories comes up where it's something that should be 30 seconds and then it's done, I'm looking around going, what are they doing now? like what are they what's going what bill is passing through congress that everybody agrees on but they need a story to distract me <laughs> like i remember a few years ago they passed the Monsanto bill and some you know 24/7 coverage of a you know probably that happened it was like you know that bundy guy uses public land and doesn't want to pay for it right. and you give him all that news coverage and of course he's just going to keep going because he's a terrible person it's like what are they passing what do I not know about? What, what right am I giving up today? Because they're, they're distracting me. <laughs>
1: it's like the sex offender guy that was trafficking 14-year-old girls. Oh, yeah, uh, Epstein. Epstein. Yeah. He hangs himself, breaks his hyoid bone with a sheet. <laughs> yeah. You know, both the guards somehow fell asleep. You know, he's not on suicide watch, even though he attempted suicide two weeks before, whatever. Yeah. Man, there's got to be so much more to that story. Yeah. And I mean, Clinton ran around with the dude. So maybe, maybe Clinton's organization doesn't want the truth to come out. Yeah. Trump certainly did things with that guy, that party with 27 girls and just Trump and Epstein.
0: Yeah, I'm sure there were no underage <laughs> girls there. <laughs> yeah, no, no and he. they weren't. I feel like he and the Clintons and probably the uh, the royal family in the UK, because one of their guys was I like he partied. Prince party, Andrew, maybe? Yep, yeah, Prince Andrew, yeah. He went around with them constantly. Like, yeah. it wasn't just like Clinton and Trump where they partied every once in a while. It was like he was at his island all the time. And I, it really seemed like when that came out, the three parties there were like, okay, so everybody just shut up let this blow over he quote unquote killed himself and uh their populace is dumb enough to believe that but we're so divided that we're just like no he didn't kill himself yeah he did it's terrible you're just a democrat you're just a republican like no let's really look at this because this is a really terrifying circumstance like i you know it's one i don't like conspiracy theories even though that's what i've been talking about for 20 minutes but boy that one just seemed blatant Yeah. Like that's there's no way like when you read into some of the stuff like with the Clinton Foundation, that freaks me out a bit because I just look at that and go like this wouldn't make sense. But you can kind of let it go every once in a while. But there are so many stories where it's just like that's a lot of that's a lot of death for people that are under 40. But then you look into it and it's like, here's what happened. This is this. This is this. But then the Epstein thing happened like, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to sneak that past everybody guess what? We're talking about something different this week. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It
1: didn't last in the news very long.
0: Uh Uh-uh. No, it didn't.
1: And that's the kind of story that needs to. Yeah. You know, we need to get to the bottom of that. If if it's Clinton and all his guys, if they're the bad guys, I want to know that. Yeah. I mean, I admire Clinton and Hillary Mm -hmm. a great deal, but I need them to be, pulled down off the pedestal I put them on if they really are, you know, child molesters or whatever. Right? Yeah. I need to know that. But I can't, I can't believe that in this day and age because of the fake news and, yeah, and the, the incomplete reporting that we get on so many things. Yeah. You know, I, I read that email that they used to send, send around about all the people that died because of Bill and Hillary Clinton. And I've read another email that said this person never existed. This person, you know. Yeah. You know, all that explained it all and made it sound like the Clintons walked on water. I don't think the Clintons walked on water. No. I don't think anybody is going to get to that level in our government without having their hands dirty to a certain extent.
0: 100%. Yeah. And with Bill Clinton, like, I don't want to. I don't know enough – like, Hillary, for whatever reason, has been very good about keeping her plate pretty clean. Um, And I don't know if that's just – she has a good PR team, if she just kind of, like, made sure that that was the case. But there are always stories about some of the stuff that she would say to Bill. And you see that, and it's like, well, yeah, okay. Like, that probably happened, but that doesn't mean that she killed somebody. But there are enough – Bill Clinton reminds me, like, of – It reminds me of Bill Cosby to a certain extent, because once you get like 10 or 12 people that are saying the same story, you're innocent until proven guilty. But that's a lot of evidence. That's a lot of corroborating stories.
1: It Kind of sounds like our president's story, too.
0: Yeah. I'm not denying that in any way, shape or form. I didn't vote for the guy. I looked at that ticket and went, I'll go third party. I I don't know what to think about either of you. I this last election confused the heck out of me because I'd always been, or 2016, I should say, not the midterm, because I ran as Libertarian there. But when 2016 rolled around, I mean, initially I was all about Chris Christie, but then Donald Trump out Chris Christie, Chris Christie. He was louder, he was more boisterous, but I always liked Chris Christie, because even though he would make headlines, when you saw him in debates, when you saw him one-on-one, He, to me, always reminded me of what people say about Donald Trump. Like, he sounds—he doesn't sound like a politician. He just sounds like a person. But he was able to communicate, and he had one scandal, and that jacked him up because he should have run before. But the bridge scandal is what it is. But he also said, like, buck stops with me. I'm good. And I respected that a lot. Then Donald Trump came around and bulldozed him. And then Christie went for my second guy, Marco Rubio, who I always thought was kind of a flounder, but at least he looked the part. And was fairly middle of the road, and I like his stance on immigration. But Christie destroys Marco Rubio in one debate. Do you remember that at all? Did you watch that one?
1: I don't recall it right now.
0: So it was there was a moment in the debate where Marco Rubio makes a point, and if somebody hadn't called him out on it, you would have just it. You know, you hear so much in those debates that it would have just gone by. But he makes a comment. And then less than five minutes later, he does the exact same comment. Oh, yes. And Chris Christie called him out on. It. He's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's what that's what Washington does to you. Mm-hmm. Your point gets taken over by whitewashing the point, And then you have your 30 second infomercial and then you're done. And it sounds great, but you have no idea what you're talking about. And the. Rubio, the idiot does it like 15 minutes later, says the exact same thing. And Christie just starts pointing at him like or waving at him like, see, and the audience turned and he was done. Yeah. And it's like, that's why I like Chris Christie. That's honestly like that kind of moment is like, that's what I liked about him. But Trump was. He was a wave of passion and and crazy thoughts.
1: (laughs) Trump was the Obama of 2008. Uh although they didn't turn out the same, they nope. captured the same
0: There were title waves. Yeah. Um Drain the Swamp, yeah. Hope and Change, like all the different ideas that were gonna come in and change what's going on. And it's yeah. like, yeah, you can be president, but you're not as powerful as a corporation because they have far more money than you. <laughs> And this is somebody who's – I'm talking, and I'm pro-business. <laughs> I'm just not pro-evil. Right. Yeah, I saw something – Do per- you
1: think that corporations are getting too big and that they need to be split up? And is that Yeah, a, is I think is the Sherman the Antitrust
0: Law really needs to start coming into play because you see how corporate consolidation is going. We have three airlines, and the government subsidizes airports and airlines. I, that is one particular thing that I'm very progressive on because even though I don't like the idea of it try not doing it you're not going to be able to make it work and if the, our economy will just shut down immediately we'll have a terrible recession if you stop doing it mm-hmm. so it's like okay everybody pays a little bit to help them out there are a lot of different factors in that but the fact that we have three airlines the fact that you know sunglass manufacturers are down to one company and they own even the places that sell the sunglasses that they make. Like the fact that corporate consolidation has become so big and mergers and acquisitions is one of the biggest things in the entire world. It's like we have a law that's been on the books since the early 1900s. It broke up standard oil. Guess what happened to the people that had standard oil stock when that happened? They just got richer, but you still need to break these companies up or else they become too strong. And that's what we're seeing now in my opinion. My humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I don't think that that law is taken advantage of enough because you have people that should – they should have to wear stickers because of who gives the money. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, what is it? Orrin Hatch is somebody who's like really big into uh, – He's his money – a lot of the money that he raises is given to him by um, like supplement manufacturers. And so every single time – a supplement manufacturer has an issue. He's always the first person on the floor. It's like, well, I know him. It's like, oh, we know you do, Oren. <laughs> so, that's my soapbox about that stuff.
1: <laughs> so, what do you think is going to happen when they star Mary a 51? Oh, my
0: God. I hope it happens. That That is the...
1: Do you know what the date is when that's supposed to happen? I
0: don't know. I thought oh, it was the 23rd? 6th.
1: Oh really? Oh, it
0: might it might be later. I know it's in September sometime. Yeah. Um I hope it happens because if you're that's one, if you're that stupid, then you just deserve to be shot immediately. <laughs> like you see some of the videos where people go ten yards into area fifty one and those guys are on them. Um I do think it brings up a really interesting question though, because you know, we develop stealth technology. We developed the was it the blackbird the one that like the fastest plane ever built
1: yeah i I can't think of the name of it but
0: But, um but we developed all of those at area 51 those have given us a leg up on the international stage as far as you know we'll call it defense even though we've used it several times but that's given us a leg up so there's a part of me that's like you don't want everyone knowing what's going on at area 51 because they might be able to trust you, but if of 330 million people, somebody's going to tell everybody what's <laughs> going on. So, I don't like the fact that the government hides stuff, but at the same time, I see the necessity of it. Yes. All of that being said, if you're dumb enough to storm area 51, just, just deal with the fact that you're going to come across with a couple of bullet wounds.
1: Probably so. Yeah. But... Wouldn't it be awesome if they rushed in there and came back out with a couple aliens? Hell yeah, it'd be fantastic had a news conference with them
0: <laughs> Yeah that would blow everyone's mind too. I I would absolutely like whether they were dead and they were just carrying them out or they were actually able to run with them I wouldn't care I'd love that. That'd make me so happy because imagine all of the questions that would be answered by just knowing that. Because we always ask, is there other life in the universe? And the answer is without question, yes. Like, it's just too big. There's too much possibility. It's it's out there. But knowing would be a very different thing. Like, knowing without question would be huge. Right. And Neil deGrasse Tyson would be the most famous human on Earth at that point. Because everybody would have questions for him.
1: That's probably true.
0: <laughs> I certainly would. Yeah.
1: So have you ever seen a UFO?
0: I've so our lake house, um, this is the only time I've ever questioned if I have, um, is when I'm down there, but we have, so Whiteman air force base is, um, in knob Noster. Our lake house is where those guys go to do a lot of exercises. So my house is on 27 acres and the number of times I've been down there on a Sunday or especially during the week and I'll see F15s just buzz us and play tag and they'll go up several thousand feet and come right back down and they've looped around my house which is it's kind of terrifying but I look at it as a positive like they're that's very good protection they're very familiar with the area but I've seen stuff in the night sky down there that just appears to be moving way too fast and it makes no sense to me but and I can't hear it but at the same time, there's so much military activity down there that I just wonder. It's like, there's no way they'd be that stupid. But it's also a very unpopulated area, so they could probably pick up a couple of rednecks where, where I'm from down there and do whatever experiments on them they want to and drag them back down. And <laughs> no, nobody's going to believe them, so it would be fine. But that's, that's the only time. We were down there at one point, and I saw something going across the night sky that I couldn't hear, but it was really far away, and we have this dock that has a three-mile view down the lake. So you can imagine how much sky I can see. And there was something that went from one side of the horizon to the other in about 10 seconds. And I was like, that's either a really fast plane or something else. And I always say plane just because I look at it and I'm just like, eh, whatever. It is what it is. What about you?
1: Actually, um, I was on a camping trip one time. And we went to White Sands National Monument, which mm-hmm. is next to White Sands Proving Grounds, where they did all the nuclear testing and stuff in New Mexico mm-hmm. and Trinity and all that. And anyway, the sand there is gypsum. It's not it's not quartz like um, most sand on a beach yeah. or anything like that. It's kind of light and fluffy feeling. Oh, interesting. It's it's very different and I highly recommend that you stop there sometime and and take in that National Monument if you're ever traveling through New Mexico because it is is really neat. Yeah. But anyway, I was with uh, Jamie Overstreet and Ben Stevens and uh, we climbed up to the top of one of these dunes and we were looking off to the west and we watched the sunset. It was a beautiful, beautiful um, spring evening. Yeah. And... When the sun went down and it got dark, we started seeing some very strange lights mm-hmm. in the sky. And you've seen the Phoenix lights or the yeah the video of the Phoenix lights and, yeah. and heard all the controversy about that. These were very much like that. Only it's just a light would just appear like it had just turned on in the sky. Mm-hmm. And it would be there for a while, and then it would fade away. And they would sometimes move to the left or right, but they didn't seem to go down. Right. You know. And somebody said, oh, those were flares that, that they were doing some kind of maneuver, and they were dropping flares. Mm-hmm. But they'd go down. Yeah. You know. Yeah. These were staying at certain levels in the sky. And we noticed probably 10 or 15 times a light would just pulse on and would be very, very bright. And then it would just dim out. And then over here, there'd be one. <laughs> and, you know, we saw probably 15 or 20 lights like that. Yeah. And then we saw one light that came on it was super, super bright, brighter than any of the others. And then equidistant on either side of that, two more lights came on. And then opposite sides two more lights came on and then two more lights came on so it was a like a a v-shaped something with seven lights oh all equal but it was the middle light came on then the next two then the next two then the last two and then all seven of them faded out at exactly the same time you know a lighting designer would have been proud, (laughs) you know, if they had done that. And it just seems so impossible that that could be like flares being dropped or something like that. Yeah. I have no idea what it was, Mm -hmm. but it was sure fascinating. And then this National Park Service truck comes by with a loudspeaker and yells at us that, park is closed we need to leave immediately return to your vehicles or they'll be towed yada 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 mm-hmm. and they rushed us out of there now nobody told us before that we couldn't stay there and enjoy the evening uh-huh. on the dune yep but suddenly it was closed so that was kind of a strange part of it too
0: yeah that's it's not terrifying that's amazing I mean, seeing something like that would just absolutely... Like, I don't think I'd be able to speak for several days. <laughs> I, I really don't. Like, I've, I've had some of those situations, whether it's, you know, it's seeing something occur naturally or whether it's, um, you know, something that's either inspirational or terrifying in a show. It's like it takes my brain a long time to kind of process what I just saw and how I'm going to handle it. So there have definitely been times where, like, 24 hours later, I haven't said a single word because I'm still just like, okay... Am I okay with this? Work through it. Okay, now I'm good. That would be one of those times that would take me like three days. Like, nope, I'm just going on vacation for about three days. We're not going to talk (laughs) because I need to process this. Except for probably yelling at the park ranger. Like, why? Because we're freaked out too. Get the hell out of (laughs) here. We don't know what's going to happen. This might be a new nuke. (laughs) But it was a
1: very strange experience. And...
0: Was it cool, though? I mean, it's got to be oh, strange, yeah. terrifying. I mean, there's. that's. Oh, no,
1: it was fascinating. Yeah. I wasn't frightened by it at all. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by it. And I'll hope that when I die, it will be revealed to me what that was. Mm-hmm. But probably not. Yeah, probably
0: <laughs> aliens. Just like we were messing with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I.
1: It's I, like, have you ever heard anything about the drug DMT?
0: Of course, yeah. Okay. Yeah, one of my podcasts that I listen to, the guy is always accused of bringing up DMT far too often, but yeah.
1: I used to watch this uh, or listen to this radio program, The Art Bell Show, Mm -hmm. uh, late at night, and he would always have different paranormal and uh, psychics and people like that and Mm -hmm. people who'd supposedly been abducted (laughs) by aliens all those different kinds of esoteric things are what he specialized in. Yeah. And why am I telling you this story? <laughs> <laughs> DMT. DMT. Yeah, exactly. One time he had a, a guy on that had probably tried every drug there ever was. It Heck was yeah. a college professor mm-hmm. and he was talking about DMT and he said that when a person gets DMT in their system they'll have a trip yeah for about 30 seconds to a minute mhm he said and they and I don't know if this is true or not cuz I've never heard this anywhere else but he said they always have the same kind of hallucination yep that were they're still on this planet but in the same space that wherever they are is Mm -hmm. there are also these crystal-like structures buildings and things and these little creatures hopping around Mm -hmm. (laughs) whatever running around that are he kind of gave the impression that they were kind of like gnomes or something Mm -hmm. and he said they can see us but we can't see them and Sometimes they screw with us just to be having fun, mm-hmm. and other times they just ignore us. Yeah. Now, if that's true, that everybody has that same hallucination, I don't think it's a hallucination.
0: Yeah, and that's the that's the weirdest thing right now because those those drugs are obviously illegal, but. had the stories that I've heard uh, Graham Hancock and then there was an author that I'm I really wish I remembered his name but he wrote DMT the spirit molecule and between those two and the stories that they share it's they have the same experiences like they have people that they see or you know beings that they see and then they also talk about they see like you know the the goddess or what I can't remember what they describe this individual as but it's like we're so glad that you have access to this thanks for coming hope you're good you know, just conversations, just, you know, one person talking, but DMT is kind of known for those short trips. And some people, you know, it's not 30 seconds to a minute. Some people it's 10 minutes, 15. It all depends on either how much they've done or how it affects their body, but it's the same kind of feeling. But if you go to Brazil or you go south, you know, to South America, there are places that you can go and you can go on ayahuasca trips. And those are the ones that are 24 to 48 hours long and it's more of a con like they call it more of a conversation and i heard that and i never thought i wanted to be on a hallucinogen and that one doesn't sound fun because they have to cook dmt in a certain way so that it can be absorbed yes and it affects your system pretty pretty in a very crazy way yeah but i heard about it i was like i'll do it that sounds like it could be a pretty eye-opening experience. Uh,
1: there's an episode of the TV show Expedition Unknown. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No. Josh uh. Gates. Mm-mm. You should look it up in the uh, on-demand stuff. Okay. But there's an episode where he goes to South America and takes ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And they film the whole process. And yeah. How sick it makes seem and, yeah, you know, everything like that. But he talks while he's under the influence and then after it's over he kind of sums it up and it's very interesting too yeah but the point i was wanting to make about the dmt is it seems to me like if everybody's seeing the same thing it's not a hallucination right it's they're seeing something that normally we aren't capable of seeing Mm -hmm. so maybe that's like the next dimension
0: yeah and well, and we know that other dimensions exist. Right. Like that's not a question. But
1: it's hard to to visualize what those what that really means. hmm But if it means that there's another level of existence that that we're not aware of, but it's in the same space and time as we are. Yeah. And that they can interact with us, then you have to think maybe UFOs aren't, they aren't from some good. other planet, maybe they're from here. Mm -hmm. It's just that for some reason we've got a glimpse into that other dimension or they've allowed themselves to be seen or something like that. Yeah. There are a lot of stories about how UFOs appeared over Chernobyl and that somehow it didn't China syndrome and melt to the center of the earth and all that kind of stuff. And nobody really knows why. Mm -hmm. But there are people that claim that UFOs appeared and then things stopped and there have been tons of stories about missile silos you know out in the middle of montana or wherever you know when they were spread out our uh strategic Mm -hmm. (laughs) i don't know my military (laughs) but, but you know that they're trying to do a test or something and instead you know this ufo appears and the missile won't launch you know they can't go to the countdown sequence or whatever yeah and it's just something in their electronics gets fried Mm -hmm. for no apparent reason you know well maybe when we explode a nuclear weapon maybe that nuclear weapon not only does damage to our dimension right but maybe a nuclear weapon is powerful enough to create damage and havoc in another dimension as well. Yeah. So maybe those things are the interdimensional police trying to keep us from messing them up.
0: Yeah. I like that you say police. My first thought was babysitter. Like, would you
1: guys stop messing with this? It might be true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we let you do it twice. Stop it. Stop doing this. This makes absolutely no sense why you should have this. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, talking about what we were talking about earlier, it's like the people that worked on the Manhattan Project regretted it every day for the rest of their life, including Albert Einstein. Oh, yeah. Like, I, know how the, I don't know how the Third World War will be fought, but the Fourth will be with sticks and stones. You know, that kind of idea. And, you know, I, when people talk about – it's so hard for me to comprehend what it even means to be on something like that. But the truth is, like, you know, you hear people like Elon Musk that thinks that we're living in a simulation – you hear people that have been on DMT that, you know, f- see different visions and see the same thing, which is very strange, that everybody comes away with the same thing. But to me, when you look as well throughout history, like, there's, um, and I really wish I could remember the name of it, but there's a, a type of bush, like, it grows as a bush, and it actually produces, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not hallucinations, but psycho, um hallucinations is the wrong word but it, it puts you on a trip mm-hmm. and um, so they've basically looked at this bush and how it what it is and they've said that could absolutely without question because of the region because of the time period because of the effect it may have had on the individual that could have been the burning bush that could have been what you know the you know 10 commandments were basically built upon was he went up there and you know saw this and went to a completely different world and was like here are ten commandments or in Monty Python's version fifteen and then <laughs> dropped, but but there's that and then like the the eye of Ra in Egyptian culture, they if you take I, and I can't remember which part of your brain it is but it is the part that they can track when you go on a trip, it's the one that is overproducing everything. If you slice your brain in half, that thing looks exactly like the traditional eye of Mm raw and it's like so throughout history you see these things and it's like again kinda like the Clintons earlier like there are just certain things that are making a little too much sense and the evidence is pointing to a direction that I don't think we are mentally capable of really being comfortable with right now but maybe we should um, study it to understand what's going on because if somebody came to me tomorrow and said well DMT is actually affecting this which is basically like a dreamlike state and the reason that everybody's saying the same thing is because it's bringing this point over here. Fantastic. Now I know. But we have no idea, and you're holding it from us. <laughs> and I'm not a big fan of that. So the Eye of Raw thing freaked me out. Like, yes. Because you look at that, those pictures together, it's like, oh, no, that, that looks way, way too similar. And our brains haven't changed that much in, in 6,000 or 5,000 years. So
1: it's crazy yeah what about near-death experiences
0: I've never had one um ever I and I'm I'm lucky enough and I'm I try to not have them um
1: are you aware of any
0: not anybody close to me no I um and maybe maybe it's because I just don't we don't talk about it that much but I I can't think of anybody that I've talked to in my family that's had one. No elevation above the table, no going through, you know, their life or anything like that. And I think maybe that's because maybe I shy away from it a bit because, like, when I was born, I was dead. So I was black and blue, not breathing, no heartbeat, nothing. Yeah. (laughs) Really? Yeah, if my mom and I would have been born, and I mean, 50 years before, 100 years before, both of us dead, dead on arrival. Yeah, they I don't know exactly what happened. I know they had a problem with my delivery and so I was stuck and there was there was nothing. I was, I was a dead baby. They carried me over, some nurse knew what to do and pop 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 started crying, got color back and then they handed me to my mom. But yeah, I was I was black and blue and done. <laughs>
1: I was also. Were you really? I was 7 weeks premature and a breech birth. Yep very very difficult for my mom and for me I suppose Yeah. and uh, I was born in a Catholic hospital and apparently the nuns were just furious with my mom because she wouldn't let the priest baptize me because we were Presbyterians and we get (laughs) baptized in the church Mm -hmm. as infants and they thought I was going to end up in purgatory because they didn't expect me to live
0: oh my goodness
1: and that But, of course, I have no memory of that whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. But we were talking about near-death experiences in freshman English class one time. Mm -hmm. And a girl told about how her grandmother had lived with them after she got um, unable to take care of herself. Yeah. And um, essentially it was probably like hospice care that she was receiving. But for the last couple of weeks, she hadn't been able to speak or to move. She was just kind of like comatose Yeah. in the bed. And they could feed her, spoon feed her. Mm-hmm. But um, she really didn't seem to be there hardly at all. Yeah. And one day, the girl was in trying to feed her something. And suddenly her grandmother like woke up mm-hmm. and just looked like herself again and sat up in bed and she was looking down at the foot of the bed and she said, mother, I've been wanting to speak to you for so long. Yep. And then she closed her eyes and was dead.
2: hmm.
1: You know? Yeah that's weird that's not a near death experience but it's that kind of
0: it's an at death experience yeah. I mean that's that is that's incredible
1: when my mother first got sick uh, she was uh, she'd had a heart attack and she'd been in the hospital after she got out of the hospital the doctor prescribed some Cipro mm-hmm. uh, which is a pretty strong antibiotic Yeah, because she had a. Uh, urinary tract infection and the Cipro I guess she was allergic to it although I'm not positive that's what you'd call it mm-hmm. but anyway when she took the Cipro she just went off the end Yeah. and was in kind of that same shape she could carry on a conversation still mm-hmm. but she didn't want to she just wanted to lay there and be left alone. Right. And anyway, she had to take the Cipro for three days, and after the third day when we didn't give it to her anymore, then she started coming back to herself again. Mm -hmm. And she said that at one point there were all these people in the room with her. And they were all people she knew, friends and family members that had passed away before her. Yeah. And they were, they were all kind of like the outline of the person you would see. Mm-hmm. But l- it's like they had a blue light inside each one of them that illuminated them from, you know. Yeah. And that all of them were there, and they were saying, we're here if you want to join us. Mm -hmm. We're here if you want to join us. And she said for a long, long time she was really thinking should I join them? Should I stay here? Yeah. And she said, and then finally one day I decided I'm not ready to be with you yet. Yeah. She said, that's that's when suddenly I started feeling well again mm-hmm. and she came out of it and she lived for another six years after that.
0: Wow. wow. That's it's incredible to me to hear stories like that because one thing that I find that is very, very consistent in not stories like I have no nobody around me. I'll tell you in a second the one story that's even close to one of those. And it's more funny than um uh trend, transcendent uh but there's never a story that i hear about where somebody on the other side is saying it's awful you need to stay right where you're at like there's never a story where it's where people are like that it's just hey pretty awesome on this side can't wait for you to discover it are you ready no cool enjoy you never hear the story about like you know you see your dad and dad's like no it's awful. The the thermostat's on 106. It's really bad. Um, But no, I, when you were going through the first, the first story, uh, I remember that my mom, my mom and uh, my grandmother were at my great grandmother's bedside right before she passed. And she had just been, if I remember right, she had been kind of just asleep for a week or two weeks. And they knew it was going to be time. Everybody was understood. She wasn't going to pull out of it, but they were just there. And, um, from what I've been told, she was a very fiery woman and, uh, she <laughs> was sleeping. And then all of a sudden she woke up, shot out of bed, like just straight up and looked over at my mom. And, uh, and, uh, I called her grand, I looked over at my mom and grand. It was like, can I sew? And they just started laughing. Like, yeah, you, you can sew. Do you want to sew? Thought about it for a second. was like, why the hell would I want to sew? Like, I, you asked. And she just kind of was like, Ugh. laid back down and was gone. Five minutes later.
3: Hmm.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's no matter what happens, if there's an afterlife, if there's not, if something even more incredible happens, whatever the case is, whatever is going on in our minds toward the end, it's got to be either fighting it or just the result of accepting it. But it's something pretty incredible. Because the amount of stories that you hear about those last few moments are very consistently, one, sometimes odd, like m- mine, but also very calming at times. Mm-hmm. Are you good to go? Come on over. And I don't know what it is. I don't think anybody knows what it is, but it's pretty incredible. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I.
1: Those are the kinds of things that fill my mind these days. Yeah. Just. Just. Imagining all the mysteries in life and trying to figure out, yeah, how they all fit together, what they all mean, mm-hmm. what's the purpose of everything. Yeah, you know.
0: Yeah, I think expanding your mind on a daily basis has to be some somewhere in that. Just knowing that you don't know anything. When you when you look around and realize like you're this small like one of my favorite things that i see is are the videos where they show somebody on earth and then they expand out to the state and then the united states and then they go to earth and then they go to the solar system mm-hmm. and then they go to the local group and then they go to the galaxy and then all the galaxies it's like you're this small that's it and we we're so far apart from everything else it's like, but somehow our consciousness needs to needs to come to grips with things. But whether it's a, a play on what morality is, whether it's a play on the size of the universe, whether it's a play on something that is just too far for our mind to comprehend, we always try to build a gateway or a wall. Sometimes we build a wall, too. I'm just not thinking about that. I'm moving on. Sometimes we try to build a gateway into our understanding, and I, that's why I like having conversations about stuff like this because – you hear other people's opinions, hear other people's stories and you gain you knowledge as a person. That's yeah. awesome. It's one of my favorite things to do.
1: I had a thought just yesterday about the purpose of life mm-hmm. and how it seems so difficult and how we struggle so much at different times and stuff like that. And why would, If there is a God, why would he put us through all this misery? Mm -hmm. You know, when he could just make everything wonderful. Yeah. And the thought occurred to me the other day. Maybe he gives us this short time on earth where we experience all the sorrows, all the tough things, all the difficult, all the pain and the suffering Mm -hmm. that we need in order to appreciate Life, Yeah. And then when we die, we can move to a place where there is no suffering and no pain
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and everything. And we can appreciate it. Yeah. Because we remember the opposites. Yeah. So, you know, maybe the purpose of this lifetime is to experience the negativities so that in heaven or whatever you want to call it we'll appreciate what we have yeah you know
0: i kind of look at it like training wheels we're we we have training wheels right now trying to understand consciousness once you leave this you better be ready to ride the bike
1: (laughs) (laughs) well that's that sounds to me like you think that if there is a next life, it'll be even more challenging than this one.
0: I think it's more. So my opinion has changed so dramatically from before, um, from what it used to be. But I, I, anytime I hear somebody that says like, I don't believe in something else, it's like, well, that would be very disappointing. Like it'll either be something far more amazing than we could possibly imagine, or it'll be a dreamless sleep. And that's what you have. I don't, like the idea, and again, maybe I'm building a wall rather than a gateway, but I don't like the idea of leaving this plane of existence and just not having another. I like the idea that in order to expand consciousness, you get to appreciate more things. So while it might be if there is a next level, I don't look at it as we're experiencing more negative things, but we're able to experience things just like we did when we were children. Because you're not used to it, because consciousness is now expanded, there's more to see, there's more to understand, there's more to do. So you could have solved every single problem on this plane of consciousness, but the next level is something far more than you can comprehend. And there may be challenges, but you've already dealt with challenges in this life. You get to have more fun in the next. And that I probably draw that a little bit, if I'm being honest, from the novel Jonathan, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Um, cause I all, my, my grandmother recommended, grand, uh, recommended that book. And she was kind of, I, I would assume she was a lot like me as far as some of these thoughts, but I, I liked the idea that, you know, in that book, he goes from being, you know, a normal bird to discovering things far past what they were able to moving into the next universe. And then at the end of the book is him teaching somebody just like him. And then, you know, his whole thing is how can you move fast? How can I go faster? How can I go faster? And then at the end of the book and this isn't spoiler alert or, alert or anything like that but at the end of the book he doesn't even have to fly he's just in a new plane of existence right. and that's what i've always i don't say that's what i've always thought but as i continue on that's where my mentality goes is i almost like i don't want the idea of heaven sounds so wonderful and it's it's you know clouds and everything's perfect and it's great but some of the best things in the world are are discovered through adversity you know if you if you are a an olympic athlete and you got a gold medal it's not because you sat on the couch eating cheetos you worked and you worked and you worked and you accomplished something at the very top of the game and made you feel fantastic because you did all of that i see the next plane of consciousness if there is one um, and i'm open to debate on that but i see it as this is just a new level to learn and if i can continue to work through those levels who knows what the end holds but what i do know is There are things in the universe that we can't comprehend now, and we've had the smartest minds in it for years. Maybe it's because there's always going to be more, and we just have to discover it.
1: It's quite possible. Yeah. Quite possible. Yeah. I love Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Yeah. And I thought you were in my freshman English class. If mm-hmm. you were, I read the whole book to you out loud.
0: Yeah, I was. <laughs> yeah, no, I and you you did. Um, but she
1: probably already read it.
0: Yeah, she gave it to me. I think I was in fifth grade when she gave it to uh-huh. me. And I read it cover to cover in a day, and then I read it again the next day and again the next day. So when you read it, I was just like, all right, I know what we're doing here. But, yeah, it's one of my favorite books. But I just love the story of, one, you can be more than what the limitations are set for you or – are set for you by others but two there's more to the universe than just what you think you know now and i like the idea that you could eventually become something that is so advanced that even trying to comprehend it now is impossible
1: in the past few months my sister and i have been trying to design our tombstones yeah now I'm going to be cremated. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother and my sister are going to be buried side by side. And the tombstone that we have, my ashes are going to be interred there Mm -hmm. also. So we have this tombstone with, I don't need to describe this to Mm -hmm. you. I just need to say that on the back of the centerpiece, we wanted some quotation. Yeah. And I didn't know what it should be, but I've been looking through uh, Richard Bach's books mm-hmm. thinking that that's where I'm going to find the, the perfect quote mm-hmm. for our headstone. And um, in the process of doing that, I made the discovery that there's a fourth part to Jonathan Livingston Seagull that wasn't published originally and just in the last few years they published it with that fourth part and it's
0: highly frustrating that I didn't know that but also <laughs> I'm really excited to go order it
1: uh, do you have a Kindle
0: uh, no oh, okay. I'm all Apple for the most part Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: well I uh, was going to say I can email the file to you it's gotcha. not, not very long Yeah. But I don't think you can open it on an Apple. I don't know. Maybe you could.
0: I'm sure there's a hack.
1: (laughs) But anyway, um, I haven't read it yet. Yeah. But I think it's fascinating that, you know, there's more. Yeah. That was there originally, but for some reason, that part wasn't published. I I don't know all the details yet.
3: Yeah.
0: That's going to have to go read that. That makes me really. Excited. It's like I said. It's one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book. And it's it's not the again an author doing more than what maybe they realized or maybe they did, but that book is so thought provoking on a on a <laughs> on a page by page basis.
1: Have you read Illusions? No, another one of his books. You must read it. Okay, it is far deeper than Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Okay. It's uh, longer, and it's about a guy who flies biplanes around and lands them in a field next to a town and gives people rides for $3. Uh-huh. And one day another plane comes along and lands next to him. We're good. And um, they become friends. And it turns out that this guy is the Messiah, but he doesn't want to be the Messiah anymore. <laughs> so he trains this guy, Richard, mm-hmm. to be the Messiah. And it's a very fascinating, fascinating book.
0: I think you would love it. Yeah, yeah. that sounds fantastic. Anything that's written like that, I, I enjoy. When you bring it down to... When you bring those very high level topics and you're able to actually put it into a story i think that's amazing when Mm -hmm. people are able to do that and do it well that's why i think atheism is so boring honestly like i i like the idea of you know you determine everything i don't you know faith is always one of those things like i like everybody has faith in something but the idea that somebody with a funny hat knows everything is really terrifying to me because (laughs) we've seen that in cults and i don't i don't like that right like i i have always been a i've never and again it's not that i don't like catholics i've always had a problem with the catholic church's history like making up purgatory so they could collect funds that's a very deeply terrifying thing that you could scare somebody about a family member in the next life and make them pay you more money um but to me like And again, building a wall rather than a gateway. But I don't like the idea that when I'm done, I'm done. You know, it seems very, it doesn't seem very fun to me. I like there to be a next stage. And if it's clouds and castles and I've got a room somewhere in somebody's house, I'll be happy with that.
1: If it's (laughs) nothing but a dreamless sleep. Yeah. That's pleasant enough. Right. But I can't help but believe that there must be something more. Yeah. You know.
2: Yeah,
0: I hope so be so boring <laughs> <laughs> Not if you're true yeah I and I do like dreamless sleep yeah. <laughs> yeah it'll it's always interesting but everything every new adventure breeds a fun ride so you just have to enjoy it <laughs> do you want to talk, cover anything else
1: it's up to you
0: I'm I'm trying to go to the next subject. We've talked about theater. We've talked about politics. We've talked about environmentalism. We've talked about UFOs. And we've talked about consciousness in the next level. <laughs>
1: we haven't talked about the climate.
0: Oh, yeah. And, and Let's get into that.
1: I've been wondering how much you've traveled in the United States to national parks and things like that.
0: I've gone – not a lot of national parks. I've gone to um, Yosemite. Obviously, you know, where our house is, it might as well be a national park because there's nothing around um, at the lake. I mean, there's a lake, but we're we're right in the middle of a forest, basically. Uh, but, yeah, I don't really – we haven't gone to a lot of national parks, to be honest with you. And one of my – I don't know if you'll touch on this, but one of my biggest things that I really dislike about what what's gone on in the current administration is that they've taken away public land. Yes. I hate that. It drives me absolutely insane. It's like, no, th- we can have pretty places, and you don't need to sell them.
1: A <laughs> uh, year ago, October, I went out west to Bears Ears National Monument and uh, Grand Staircase-Escalante Steps National Monument. Yeah, the two that Trump has
2: yeah,
0: squashed
1: down to like a third of what they were before. Yep, and as a result. Thousands and thousands of archaeological sites and stuff like that are now gonna be strip mined and fracked and and drilled into submission, I suppose. Yep. And there's so many things that this administration has done that anger me, that seem so wrong and so incorrect, but almost all of them can be Undone. Undone. You know, any mm-hmm. law, any presidential executive order, any of those things, a new president can come in and change it all back.
0: Yeah. I mean, the famous line, you know, um, elections have consequences. You know. Like they can be fixed, though.
1: But you've been to Yosemite. Mm-hmm. And if Yosemite was strip mined, if all those trees were cut down and made into boards. Oh, it'd be awful. The houses are going to look just like all the other houses.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: but that forest will never be there again. Mm-mm. Half Dome and those things, and there's so many places just as beautiful as Yosemite. Out there oh yeah, that are that are being destroyed, and we'll never get them back. There's Mm-mm. no law that can rebuild it. No, once it's gone, and that that is the biggest sin to me of all. Other than perhaps putting children in cages and the way he's treating uh, migrants. I understand if you're terrified of the other that you want to do everything drastic you can to keep them from coming to your home. You know, if he's that afraid of immigrants, which obviously he has a tremendous fear, Mm -hmm. um, I can understand the reasoning behind doing that. My mom and dad lived in a place one time that had rats in the basement mm-hmm. when they moved in. And mm. <laughs> my, my sister was an infant in a crib. Yep. And they'd heard tales of a rat gnawing a kid's Achilles tendon in two. And
2: oh, jeez. The kid
1: always walked with a limp because of what that rat did to it when it was in a crib. Yeah. And so they were terrified of these rats. And they'd trap them and catch them and there would just be more Mm -hmm. and one day they caught one in a trap but the trap snapped on it and smashed its back legs but it didn't kill it Mm -hmm. and my dad took a stick and started poking that rat and torturing it and Mm -hmm. it would just scream and make terrible screechy noises or something you know I wasn't there but yeah you know but they always said that they did that and did that and did that and finally you know then they finally killed the rat and that solved the rat problem yeah no other rats ever came around again Mm -hmm. now i don't know if it's true or not but it seems like this is what trump's trying to do he's trying to scare migrants away from coming to the united states by creating this Story of the horrible things will happen to you if you come here. Yeah. But he's really doing that to people. It's not rats in a trap that he's torturing. It's real human beings. Yeah. And, and that's pretty awful.
0: Well, and it's, and I don't, I don't profess to know as much as I probably should about the situation, but what I had heard, again, could be wrong, was that this was a program that was started under previous administrations, that it wasn't as enforced as it has been in the past. It wasn't what it is right now, Um, which I think should tell you every lesson you need to learn about laws that are passed and their impact could be more severe than you believe, and that's why you should restrict things like that. My biggest question for the current, you know, quote-unquote immigration crisis, if you want to call it that, is that all the data show like two, there's two sets of data all the data shows right now we actually are not we don't keep immigrants like we're losing immigrants from south of the border more so than they are coming up here but there was also a study done and i think it was npr um i really wish i remember the program i thought it was npr though where they basically took a look at every immigration measure that's been passed on, uh, and I think it was specifically at the southern border like how much we've enforced immigration laws and how much we try to keep people out and what they found was every single time we passed a law with more restriction more people would come in and stay and the reason was not that they were wanting to but it was they would before there was a p- big push for immigration at the border individuals would come up here normally young males they would work in California collect as much money as they could, and then they'd go back down south for the winter. And then they'd stay down there, and then they'd come back in the summer, and they collect, and then they'd go down. When we started enforcing immigration, when we put up fences and when we put checkpoints up and that kind of thing, what would happen is that one person would come up, and it took so much money for somebody to sneak them up here that they'd just stay. And so they'd stay, and they'd just send money back electronically or, you know, via whatever money order or whatever or it was bring but they
1: family here also
0: exactly well when the penalty got even more stiff it was like well now i can't even send the money back the way that i need to so now i'm going to bring my family up here in piecemeal and they're going to stay too and so we basically just built a system where we thought we were building a wall that would keep people out what ended up happening was they'd pay to get past the wall and then they'd just stay because it was easy to stay right so it's like if you got rid of that barrier People could come in and out, and you could have, you know, a workflow that worked at the border, but you would also have people that would live where they're from, which is where they want to live. I mean, most people live where they were born because that's what they're comfortable with. That's where their family is, and you would see that. But now we've just created such a process, and it's been so ingrained in our mind that this needs to stop, and how are we willing to do this, that we've gotten to the point where we passed laws like the one that was passed so that you could have family separation. And what we're really doing is saying, you know, we we don't have as much respect for human life as we do for um our own kind of obnoxiously and this is my opinion obnoxiously wrong security idea like if we would have just kept what we had back in the day yeah they would have been back and forth they would have earned money up here it would have been illegal and they would have gone back but we wouldn't have the quote-unquote immigration crisis that we do now and that's kind of what i see there is just like this is enforcement and misinformation
1: I think you're right now yeah.
0: so I mean that's one of the big libertarian things why they always have to struggle is because it's free workflow throughout the country or throughout you know nations if there's work up there that the people in that country aren't willing to do have them come up have them make money have them go back down nobody's hurt when you have something like this you end up not looking like the country of freedom and that's unfortunate
1: it is. I yeah. think we've really damaged our image with the rest of the world. Yeah. And,
0: um, I, I mean, and we've been doing that for, I mean, it's almost what it's almost been two decades since we started, you know, going to war in the Middle East and just staying there. Yeah. And we're still there. And nobody has any idea, but it's become so, we're so numb to it now that we don't even comprehend it like the only time that you get mad is when somebody you know a soldier dies overseas it's like well, why are we still there and then it goes away and then another one dies and it goes away it's a weird situation yeah. we have bases everywhere in the world and we're still doing it we're still thinking that these problems that are net negative right now are still problems But as far as the climate goes, as far as the national parks go, that was just depressing to me. It was like Theodore Roosevelt pulled off one of the greatest heists of executive power in American history by basically saying like, yeah, we'll make sure that we don't have many national parks, even though I can designate them, we'll work together. Congress goes out of session and he goes, I'm going to make all of these areas national parks by executive order. And it stood for nearly a century or a century, a century. And now they're getting their land taken back.
1: Well, you definitely need to see what's out there.
0: Yeah, because it might be gone west. before too long. <laughs> yes.
1: Well, there's an arch that I saw in Arches National Park that, mm-hmm. that I always really admired. It was one that you got a good view of from the, from the road mm-hmm. driving through. And a huge section of it broke loose and fell down the other day. Which is just a natural part yeah. of erosion. And that's how all the other arches were formed is by, you know, rocks breaking loose and the, I don't know, the crystalline structure in the sandstone yeah. causes it to break in curved lines. And, and that's what creates the arches. And someday a rock somewhere will break and create an arch where there wasn't one before, Mm -hmm. but that one gone. It's not gone. No, it's much (laughs) thinner (laughs) than it was. Gotcha. You know, it's, it's on the way to disappearing. I mean, visually I can look at it and see how much it's changed just in my lifetime. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's spectacular to see those things. And, uh, zion national park and bryce canyon yeah and all of those things that are just creations of nature they they really need to be preserved
0: totally agree 100 yeah. percent the when you can see every you can see every picture of el capitan in the world and you'll never appreciate it until you actually see it same thing as anywhere else just like I, we didn't have a chance to go on the half dome trail because I was younger and it was like an 8.8 or 16 mile trail but I always said like I want to go on that at some point and see it yeah. um, but I mean where we came into the entrance of Yosemite, El Capitan is the first thing you see and that is one of the most incredible structures like just natural things that exist in this world that I cannot believe is not more appreciated just a Three what is it, two thousand or three thousand foot sheer cliff face? Mm -hmm. Like and there was a guy that climbed up it without a rope. Did you hear about that? Yes. Oh my god. I watched that video and about got sick. Because they do the first one as they go right over and he's halfway down it and it's just nothing. Just space, nothing. Like, nah. Gotta be insane. You have to be completely insane to do something and they like
1: that. Strap themselves to the side and s- sleep overnight. Yep. Oh my God. No, there's no <laughs>
0: way. I don't have, I don't have the balls to do that. I, any like if it were a mountain that was 20 feet up, at least you survive. But on that one, the moment that something fails, you're dead. Yeah. Like there's no question. You're just gone.
1: It's like these guys are so cool. They can sleep strapped to the side of a 3,000-foot rock face, Mm -hmm. and I didn't sleep a wink last night (laughs) simply because I was suffering from anxiety about doing this podcast.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Nope. Couldn't do it. Every time I see one of those pictures, I just freak out. Like, you don't think you have a fear of heights until there's no barrier between you and that kind of drop, and then you recognize that there are certain people in this world that can just handle it. And you're not one of them. Like, I remember there was that movie that came out a few years ago. I think it was uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, where he played the guy that did the tightrope across the Twin Towers. Mm -hmm. And there were people getting sick, like physically sick in the audience when they'd go see it in 3D. And you don't think that you would be that person, like, oh, it's just something on screen. And then a buddy of mine brought over an Oculus Quest, which is one of those 3D Mm -hmm. systems. And the Quest has no strings on it. You have two handles, and it's just all built in here. And he had this thing. It was called like Johnny's Ladder and or something like that. And basically, you turn the screen on, and you're at street level. And you look up, and you hear buses. You hear cars. You hear a little wind. And you see things in front of you. And I was watching my wife do this first, and I was just laughing at her because basically you walk – no, it's like Johnny's plank. I'm sorry. And you hit one button, and you kind of physically walk into an elevator, and you just kind of tap wherever you want to go. And, like, the first one is – the first level is just a big, open, fenced-off area that's maybe 15 feet above street level, 15, 20, whatever it is. It's not very high. And you just walk out. It's like, oh, okay, street level. And you look up again, and there's a plank way up on, like, a 100-story building. (laughs) And you hit the button. And, again, I'm watching my wife do this, and she's freaking out. So when I put it on, I'm like, I'm going to be fine because you're just in your living room. So I hit the button, and you go on the plank, and it is a plank straight out from the building. And now you hear even more wind, and even though the graphics aren't great, you feel immersed in this new reality and I was in my living room walking with these tiny steps out to the very far end of this plank and just looking down and completely lost my crap, my shit. Just completely lost it. And it was completely fake. If I jump off of it, the worst it's going to do is act like I'm falling. Uh But the reality was that everything in that present reality, the sounds, the look, everything felt like I was on a hundred story building on a wooden plank that was a foot wide. And so I turned around and walked my happy ass back to the elevator and hit the button and I went right back down to the main floor. (laughs) But yeah, so I see stuff like that. So you think that kind of freak out and then you see 3000 feet of sheer cliff face. It's like those naturally occurring things are pretty amazing when we can't even build something that's like that. Like it's take your breath away. But, yeah, that, I would not recommend that game because I, if no, if I hadn't have had people here, I probably would have cried. It was terrifying. <laughs> They're like, just jump off. Just see what happens. It's like, no, 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 no. I will make fun of everybody, but I'm just as worried as you are about this situation. That was the scariest thing.
1: Well, what was your most frightening experience in real life?
0: Most frightening experience in real life? Um I don't know. I'm not a brave person when it comes to that kind of stuff. I don't like heights. I mean, I've been... So we... This is the kind of person I am. Like, this is the kind of thing that freaks me out. So my wife and I went recently to Miami. and We were on a... We went to... um, We stayed in a hotel that was... It was in one of their channels that comes in from the intercoastal. And... The pool and kind of the main bar area was built about 20 stories above the main part of the street. So you would look out from the pool to the street, and then you'd look behind you, and the hotel was still another 60 stories above that. So I went to the very edge, and I looked down, and I was like, okay, this is fine. It's not too far above there. But the moment that I turned around and then looked at the very top of the building— like the air went out of my lungs because it was like not only am I this far away from ground level but I'm that but that's that high up that's physical structure is that high up and so I've never done anything where I'm like parasailing or I parasailed but that didn't freak me out but that stuff where it's relative where I can see just how far up I am that freaks me out my dad and I parasailed I thought it was the coolest thing in the world yeah I bet it was yeah I mean you're however many stories up on a on a you know Uh, parachute by you know pulled by a boat and I've done that three times and the first time I did it we caught a wind coming off of a cliff and we shot horizontally about 50 feet and they didn't want us to do that that was not their intention because we could have folded and fallen and I was laughing and having a great time I did that in Costa Rica I did another time at Table Rock Lake I love that but it's the moments where I can physically see exactly where I am that I freak out (laughs) so me on a mountain is not going to work out very well for me but that's also the reason that i've had like two broken bones in my entire life because i try to avoid those scary situations (laughs) what about you
1: i've only had two broken bones in my life yeah but they were both My right leg, and I just missed a step going from the living room into the garage. (laughs) I was carrying a box of stuff for a garage sale. Yep. And, of course, I still had the garage sale, and I hobbled around Mm -hmm. all day (laughs) in unbelievable pain. Yeah. And finally, when it was time to shut down the garage sale— the friends that were helping me with the sale said and now we're taking you to the emergency room <laughs> we don't care how much you scream and cry <laughs> we're taking you you need to be treated for this and i had both bones in my right leg a spiral fracture and one and mm-hmm. the other one was just broken i guess anyway they put me back together yep and it works now so
0: that's good yeah <laughs> Especially after all day on it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: As far as being frightened after I asked you that, mm-hmm. I thought, now he's going to turn around and ask of me. Of course I am. And what <laughs> am I going to tell him? <laughs> and, you know, I've always got lots of stories, but uh, access them right now is sometimes hard. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you this one. <laughs> and it's maybe not the Most frightened I've ever been, but certainly on the list. Yeah. And it kind of relates to some of the things we've already talked about.
3: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Uh, Alien abduction. Oh. When I was in (laughs) third or fourth grade, Mm -hmm. I um, went to bed one night and went to sleep. And then all of a sudden I woke up in bed. And the light was on in my room. And I couldn't move, except for my eyes, I could not move. Mm -hmm. And lying in bed on my left-hand side was a nightstand with a lamp on it. And that was the light that was on. But it was was like it was attached to a dimmer or something. Mm -hmm. It was kind of pulsating, brighter and dimmer, but sometimes brighter than it would actually be under normal circumstances right. even. And then it started shaking. And I could feel the vibration in in me as well. Yeah. It was just shaking even though I couldn't move myself. Yeah.
0: No idea it's why like you'd be terrified of that. The bed
1: was moving and the lamp was shaking and the finial that screws the lampshade onto the lamp mm-hmm. was loose, I suppose, because I, I could tell that the lampshade was kind of vibrating so much that it was kind of turning around, not, mm-hmm. not spinning like you'd see in a movie or something, yep. but it was like like it was turning. The lamp was really shaking, and I was just absolutely terrified And then I woke up Hmm. and it was morning and everything was fine.
0: And yet the fastest you ever got out of bed.
1: (laughs) It was so strange. Yeah. And this was before they, you know, people telling about alien abduction stories and stuff like that all the time. now. Yeah. But I was like third or fourth grade Mm -hmm. and in the sixties, People didn't talk about that stuff. It wasn't on TV. Right. And for it to be so similar to the types of alien abduction stories that you hear other people tell all the time really makes me wonder. Yeah. You know, but I don't think I have any implants or
2: (laughs) (laughs) anything like
1: that. But I'll always wonder. Yeah. You know because i was so terrified because i could not move a muscle.
0: Yeah. That's not a fun situation to be in.
1: No. But then for it to just like just like that it's i wake up was it a dream? Mhm. Maybe. I don't know, but it was just the strangest the strangest thing i ever experienced, i suppose.
0: Yeah. That's crazy. That yeah. would that would scare the hell out of me. No matter what age I was. But (laughs) I never,
1: never began to think of it as a possible alien abduction. Didn't even think about aliens back then. Yeah. You know, it was just something really weird that happened to me. And it wasn't until many years later that I started hearing alien abduction stories.
0: And the exact same thing. Maybe that's
1: what happened to me that night. Yeah. You know.
0: No. I've only had the situations like that where I wake up and your brain doesn't let you move, and that's scary enough. I don't I don't need the the rest of the the look yeah. to to do with that.
1: The sleep paralysis thing. Yeah.
0: That's never fun. It's like is this my like it's it lasts 5 seconds and at the end of 5 seconds you're wondering if this is your life now. Like <laughs> Uh-oh, something happened to my brain last night. That's not really good. What's going to happen now? Am I going to what's going to Oh, now I can move. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Isn't it
1: amazing how far into the future we can take something in our mind? Mm Mm-hmm. You know?
0: Immediately.
1: Yeah. You just – you can project into the future all the stuff that's going to happen or isn't going to happen because of that. And then – oh, no, it's okay.
3: (laughs) I'm good.
0: Oh, now my toe's moving. I'm fine. I'm going to be good. That's great. Yeah. Those are – I've had – several dreams the last, like, probably month or so that have been real enough and awful enough where I'm just like, I wish I was one of those people that just didn't need sleep. That'd be great. I'm I'm kind of done with sleep at this point. I've had 32 years where I've slept every day, or almost every day, probably with a couple exceptions. I don't I don't need it anymore. I'm fine. I don't need to have these dreams and stress myself out. <laughs>
1: you have stressful, stressful dreams?
0: Yeah, and normally, like, it's not... it. This started when when we had kids because, like, with Connor and Archer, it's like anything negative in your life is just... I can extrapolate on that to, to an infinite level because it affects them. And so I think because I worry about them and about everything that goes on and, you know, my wife and them and what happens then my brain just is like yeah what does happen let's dream about it let's figure this out and i don't i don't react well to that so i'll just wake up in a cold sweat and just be like okay go check on my kids make sure they're fine go check on my wife make sure she's good i mean she's right there but yeah it's it's never i'm not a big fan of of those kind of dreams
1: responsibility <laughs> sure adds yeah an aspect to your life that Childhood doesn't prepare us for.
0: No, not at all. And it, good. You, you don't need those dreams as being a child. You're already are dealing with enough stress, like the dream you had, and life and learning and growing, and your brain is constantly getting bigger and bigger, and your hormones are going crazy at some point in your life. It's like anybody who says that being young is easy, it's like it's not. It just looks fun for for us. <laughs>
1: there are a lot of things in our world and the way we treat things that are just – just wrong yeah it's like senior citizens discounts really tick me off (laughs) why don't we have discounts for young people yeah when i was from the time i left college until i got my student loans paid off so about the first 15 years of my teaching career Mm -hmm. i was practically starving
2: yeah
1: you know it's really difficult for one person without a roommate or a wife mm-hmm. that also works or something yep. to maintain a household. Yeah. It really is hard to do that nowadays. hmm And it's so sad. And when I was that age, I never got a discount for anything. Yeah. Now, anywhere I go, they want to give me a senior citizen discount. And I, and I usually tell them, no, thank you. Yeah. I'm an adult, yeah. and I'm at a point in my life where I can afford things.
0: Yeah, give it to that guy that has the turkey sandwich and water. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. And anyway,
0: yeah, that's all good. <laughs> well, I think I've got to shut it down and go grab my kids. Oh, okay. All right. Am Thank I gonna you. get to meet them? Huh? They're or well. They're, they're at they daycare now. They're at yep. daycare. Yeah. Oh, they're. Yep. Yeah. We'll meet. You'll meet them. We'll get that arranged. Okay. I gotta meet you.
1: And remember you need to come to a poker game now
0: i know i know and you'll please make it an easy stakes poker game because it always is okay
1: everybody (laughs) just pays five dollars and we all get the same amount of chips oh okay we play all night and then the person who's got the most chips gets everybody's five bucks except second place gets their five dollars back
0: nice i like that
1: you know you can't lose more than five dollars
0: i can i can deal with losing five dollars
1: we just have fun Mm -hmm. you know anybody that gets serious and gets upset when they don't win or whatever i don't invite them back
0: no god no well don't get mad about five dollars no that's not the point of this it's more just say you're you're in the game yeah yeah well i'll bring my i'll bring my McAllen and we'll play some poker okay all right thanks so much for coming on
1: thank you